We know of new methods of attack. The Trojan Horse, the fifth column. Greetings, and welcome back to another exciting installment of the fifth column podcast. This is your more frequently than weekly right now. We're just going to say it because now more than ever, you need us. You need us, not just America, around the world, especially this week. I'm Camille Foster. I do various things at Freethink, and I am delighted to be with you, super excited to be with you, and thrilled to be joined by exemplary people. As as per usual, Matt Welch, editor-at-large of Reason Magazine, is in the building. And when I say in the building, I mean literally in the building, because we're actually in Moynihan's apartment. We're in the bookcases. Together in Brooklyn, New York. <laughs> yes, that's right. Not live from Bedford-Stuyvesant, live from Williamsburg, where I couldn't find a parking space. And Michael Moynihan is here, Vice News. Did you just complain about parking? It, yes. It's Sorry, really hard to find parking. Yeah, after a certain time, it's, it's very hard to find Well, parking. everyone seems to be buying cars. Everyone has COVID cars. That's right. I talk to, like, other people in my neighborhood, and the city is us. mostly empty. Yeah. But every single person that I talk to who lives in the building in front of me or around me, like they've all bought cars in the last yep. I know two months. people who bought cars this week. Yeah. Yeah. COVID cars everywhere. But and by the way, it's also impossible to park in the city yeah. because all the streets have been taken over by outdoor seating and, yes. and restaurants. Yeah. They're building all of Which these is, little decks for people cool. to sit on. Oh, it's great. I was out last night. I had drinks last night and, um, I was sitting out and it was the most New York, New York thing ever. It was a beautiful balmy night. And we're in the East village, um, sitting, sitting, on this outdoor seating right next to an enormous pile of trash. Yeah. <laughs> because, and it was like, so disgusting. And it was fine. But like later in the night, it started kind of moving over a little yeah. bit. Yeah. Yeah. It was kind of gross. Was, was it the rats that were moving the trash or just the trash was accumulating? Or the, there were a lot of, of animals in the trash. We saw yeah. a cat come out of it. Yeah. We saw like a human come out of it. Yeah. Like New York is just, For those New of York, you we who, call that nature. Yeah. It's getting shittier. <laughs> it's getting back to being shittier. For those of you who've never been to New York city, like when we say huge piles of trash, you don't have any idea no, what we're no talking idea. about. <laughs> no we're idea. talking like 50 hefty bags, yeah. heaving hefty yeah. bags. They can be twice as tall as you are, the pile. Mm. Anyone who got over the Berlin Wall from 1961 to 1980 could not, could not actually no. get over these piles of trash. So. Well, I, I want to bring in our guest for the day. Do we? Um, because, yeah, well, it's <laughs> good that we talked old, a little man. bit about New York because he hasn't been here for some time yeah. because he is down under. And you already know who it is because his name is in the description. Yeah. But I like to tease in the a way. Maybe you found a way to surprise yourself. But we're joined by Josh Zeps, ladies and gentlemen. G'day, Cobbers. How are you? From down all the way from down under with the riding me kangaroo and holding me koala. G'day. Oh. I do miss being in New York. Did that just throw the levels out? Because I can. Uh, it probably so let me, did. Let me. Let me. Let me yeah. Yeah. Let me paint did the picture here for you, uh, for you, uh, listener. <laughs> I'm looking, I'm sitting in Sydney and I'm looking at the three other gentlemen with great jealousy because they look, <laughs> the, the, the fact that they're together physically mm-hmm. in this COVID. crazy world, yeah. Yeah. that they are that they are in a pandemic and they're hunkered down in Brooklyn in a place I'm so <laughs> familiar with. Yeah. And I, I feel a little less remote. I feel Josh. a little less far away. I feel mm. a little less estranged. I feel like I'm breaking <laughs> bread at your table. Wow. Wow. <laughs> Josh, why did you leave? I don't think I ever clarified why you were a Huffington Post live uh, host, the best one on there. Yes. I remember a great uh, interview. A you did, and people should go look this up of uh, Josh Stepson, Norm MacDonald. Uh-huh. Uh, oh, where he God. made it was the it was because Norm's the funniest man alive. Where he made fun of uh, who was it like Jimmy Fallon or something? Oh no, yeah. Seth Meyers. <laughs> Seth was, Meyers. Uh-huh. 
called him like unfunny and uh-huh. and, and, and norm mcdonald had the, you know I, yeah i go to uh, steph myers to find out what's funny and it's it's a very very good thing but you you had this great you had a life it was here. so much good stuff what yeah happened? no i had that well uh for a start uh half post live was unable to keep up with the with the the times and kind of start the wheels started falling off that whole thing and then basically my partner and i we decided to have kids and so we went through the whole surrogacy process i'm married to a guy and and uh, we and i just felt like it was something a bit different and and, the, and so we moved to california we always kind of wanted basically the long story short is i always wanted to raise children in australia at some point mm. and the opportunity came up work-wise to come back and get a, a sweet gig at a, at a radio station here and i also could just foresee that uh the pandemic was coming and i wanted to get the hell out of dodge now Josh, uh, and i, I gotta also i, I gotta go be ahead. honest politically speaking i didn't i did not i did, was not crazy about spending the next four years with that orange man in my head the whole time Aww. politically and being deranged by the the kind of response, the reaction to Trump and yeah. how much of the conversation got consumed by Trump. Yeah. And I wanted to be able to, fo- as a journalist, I wanted to be able to focus on other stories that were a bit more interesting. Yeah. And there's more opportunity to do that in Australia. Yeah. Well, you know what, Josh, I, I didn't run down your current affiliations or the projects that you're currently work, working on because I'm, I'm not sure what they all are. I do know that you are at <laughs> the ABC and yes. perhaps you could give folks a little bit of context. Being the, real at the, real the ABC, ABC. Yes. The ABC is the Australian Broadcasting Corporation, which is, uh, which you could think of as Australia's version of the BBC. Mm-hmm. Uh, what that is in the UK. I only say that because if I say it's Australia's version of PBS or NPR, that <laughs> then you think, oh, a tiny, cute, underfunded, stuffy, little insignificant thing on the edge of broadcasting <laughs> as public broadcasting is in the States. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas the ABC is a beloved and a well-resourced institution in Australia. Mm-hmm. And um, so I do a bunch of things here, which I won't bore your listeners with, but primarily radio broadcasting. And I now have a new podcast called Uncomfortable Conversations with yes. Josh Steps, where I have uh, raw, bullshit-free conversations with interesting people about taboo topics. Um, so that's my latest thing. That, and I have two... Are you worried about that, um, you know, affecting yes. your job, job at the ABC? <laughs> yes. <laughs> you are. Yeah. You are. <laughs> of course I am. I think anybody, I mean, people, people who claim online to not be worried about cancel culture are either idiots who don't know the the scale of it, or they're so boring and banal that their opinions are always going to fall within whatever the mob says their opinion should be. So as someone who works for an institution that in its charter has to be apolitical, has to be fair, has to be genuinely impartial, uh, that is a taxpayer-funded refuge from the vagaries of corporate money and political influence – it's uh, of course it's constantly at the back of my mind thinking about not so much am I going to say something right now that the mob is going to come for, but am I going to say something right now that I don't even know that in three years the mob will come for? Yeah, and I want to because I don't know what the rules will be. Yeah, yeah, and I want to talk about uh, the the cancel culture stuff um, and perhaps a little bit of a preview here. Uh, this week, our very good friend friend of the podcast. She is most certainly gang gang. Uh, Barry Weiss has departed the New York Times uh, in pretty grand fashion, spectacular fashion, whether or not you think it's good. Uh, it is spectacular. She wrote um, a barn burner of a resignation letter um, that posted online. And for about two days, uh, Barry was trending for different reasons. Yeah, um, two One, different because reasons, our right? friend Thomas Chatterton Williams uh, actually 
evicted someone from the place where he was living in France who had been bad-mouthing Barry and to, uh, from Thomas's perspective, could not substantiate their dislike for her. And he didn't like that and eventually asked this person to leave. Then Barry started trending that day. The following day, on Tuesday, <laughs> she resigns from the New York Times first thing in the morning and she's trending again. That trending only ended because of a guy named Nick Cannon, the kid who was in Drumline, the kid who married uh, Mariah Carey, fathered a pair of twins, mm -hmm, yeah. I guess a pair of twins, right? That's how you say it, right, Josh? You yeah, have yeah. twins. Um, well, actually, it's funny as you mentioned that because every time I talk about them on the air, uh -huh. uh, we have enough. Like it's the it's the you know one of the most listened to shows in Australia. I'm not saying that to beat my own trumpet, <laughs> but because anytime you say anything not that is so moderately. Long. Anytime you say anything that's moderately controversial, everybody will pile on. So it's on ABC Radio Sydney, and the entirety of Sydney all starts chiming in, criticizing me for, as to whether it is a pair of twins or really? two twins. Yeah. And some people even some people say that a pair of twins means that there are four humans. No, no, it has to be. And a I pair say of no. It's like a pair of pants. Thank you. It's, a, yeah. it's one pair. That's right. And yeah, but then this is Australia. Say, like the water goes down the drain different. Like everything's yeah, like but it's still a pair language. Of and, right. and I want to and I want to say, people, like I love shoes. So when I suggest that children are like shoes, and a pair of shoes is just like a pair of twin children, it's because I love shoes and I love kids. Yeah. I'm a very nice guy. I'm filled with love. I'm a little bit confused. Don't worry about it. But, but, we, we but all of those things, all of those things, are worth us talking about. I'd also love to spend a little bit of time talking about what seems to be a not quite brewing, but already underway brand new Cold War. This is Cold War II, and this is the United States and China. And I think it is fair to say that the Chinese have most certainly been in a Cold War with us red, for a long time. Red, The China, red Chinese, the CCP, the mm -hmm. bastard, the ungodly CCP. Um, and, <laughs> and the United States seems to be getting on a much more assertive, aggressive footing. And I think there are some things that we can talk about there. But Josh, because you are here with us and because you can offer us some international perspective, um, I think it, it is perhaps a good idea to talk. And I'm also just curious about this. How the hell are you managing this global pandemic? Because while all of these other things are going on, there is, in fact, a global pandemic and it has changed all of our lives in inexorable ways uh, i mean i'm even uncomfortable with moynihan using his vape and blowing smoke all over me which is definitely i was looking at that i'm looking at that you also know nothing about science continue that is racist <laughs> but, i know but, uh, uh, about numerology uh, yeah. and spiritual warfare <laughs> yeah so yeah, just the, like nick cannon yeah, you are nick i cannon. also know that the white man was created in a laboratory yes by yakub <laughs> that's right um, <laughs> it's funny because i just remembered this and i I remember this right at the beginning, and I don't think anyone's mentioned this since, and you can look this up, that one of the first COVID deaths in New York, or around that time, um, de Blasio said, well, you know, he was a vapor. And oh vaping God. is clearly killing people. So if you have COVID and you're vaping, please stop. Is vaping. that true? Yeah, I don't yeah, remember yeah. that at yeah, all. Yeah, it rings yeah. a bell. It came yeah. up and like wow. it just disappeared really quickly because that was probably about 25 minutes after he was like, why are you not in Chinatown, wow. you racist? God, do you remember that? Like 30 years ago, everyone was concerned about vaping. Right? Yes. Outlawed yeah. all. That's right. Yeah. Well, yeah. they did actually outlawed all. Yeah. Yeah. I can't. I mean, can't, there are so many good reasons. Here. There are so many good reasons to have contempt for vapors. We really don't need to throw <laughs> coronavirus into the mix. There's also here. a lot of reasons 
reasons to have contempt for Australians, but I'm not talking about that. <laughs> so, so, Josh, you're, so, this is, this is dealer's choice here. I, I, I know that I know that we're going to we're going to talk about Barry Weiss and cancel culture and Nick Cannon and uh, and Hong Kong and coronavirus. But we'll I was try. under the impression that mostly what we're going to talk about is my interview with Paul Hogan. Yeah. Is that not? <laughs> Let's but, begin wherever you like. You're not wrong this, about that. So uh, the we were just joking. Yeah, we okay. were joking. We were joking off the air when uh, the other day about my my interview with Paul Hogan, which is literally the most cliched Australian thing that I've ever done. <laughs> to be like, and Moynihan, Moynihan, who keeps shitting on on, on Australians just for the fun of it. I was I like, Moynihan, who do you think I just spoke to? And he's like, Yahoo, serious? I'm yeah. like, no, the, <laughs> the other first. person you might make fun of. He's yeah. like, yeah. I think. Paul Hogan, I was like, you nailed it. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> well, my, my follow-up is that, you know, what does it say about your country when you say, I did a really Australian thing, and the second guess was interviewed Paul Hogan? <laughs> <laughs> it says that there are only two people who Americans have any idea about. There are only yeah, two yeah. people from every country who Americans yeah. have well, any idea I, and about. Well, listeners no, this true. program know that my, uh, in my top five pantheon of great writers, Clive James was probably number three or two, depending on the day. So um, yeah. I'm a big fan of, uh, and there's a, he was uh, uh, the Barry, uh, what the hell was that movie that he was in that everyone should watch? It's the, the weirdest. Advent- oh, that's right. The Adventures, the Adventures of, Barry- of Barry McKenzie, Barry which McKenzie. I remember wow. you and I were, were, once, were yeah. once drunk at a bar yes. in Brooklyn. And I told you that my mother was in that movie <laughs> oh, and you right. wouldn't believe me. Holy and then you were like, your mother was in my favorite Australian movie. <laughs> yeah. That's, she was, that's she was another, also in the that's another way in which right? you can say to like a stunned uh, you know, gay bar. <laughs> there was like, number one, what is Michael Moynihan doing here? And number two, Josh Zepps' mom was in Barry McKenzie. Every, everyone knows what you were doing at the gay bar. Yeah. Not really. <laughs> this is not a problem. Josh Zepps, the only place you can he meet. Was hanging out with, he was hanging out with me and my fag buddies. No yeah. offense. Uh, <laughs> Including Moynihan, which is, of, there's nothing wrong with that. Speaking of coronavirus. Yeah. Speaking of coronavirus. Do you remember who the first celebrity to get coronavirus was? Tom Hanks in Australia. Yeah, we gave it to him. (laughs) That's back when you had it. Haven't you guys like eradicated it? He was out here shooting. And uh, I get into so many arguments about this on Twitter that it drives me up the wall. And I wonder if any of you can can provide a defense of the position of Mm. most Americans on this, which seem to be, even if they're not Trump supporters... So let me tell you what Australia did, okay? The moment it happened, and it, I, I know how annoying it is when foreigners tell you how great they did things, and don't worry, the end of this, the end of this, the end of this, the end of this ends with the fact that today is the worst. Today has the biggest daily increase of uh, of coronavirus infections in Australia in any jurisdiction since the pandemic began. So don't oh. worry, you get to lord it over Australia uh, eventually, but. I'll tell you what what happened. They, in addition to closing the border to China, closed the border to everywhere and didn't allow any foreigners into the country at all. What what, uh, what around when was this, Josh? This was at the beginning of February, right? Okay. This was when at the same time that the U.S. So the U.S. got its first uh, recorded case and Australia got its first recorded case in the same weekend. Mm-hmm. Uh, in late January, I think it was the last week of Jan. Mm-hmm. Then in February, Trump closed the border to China, but continued to allow Americans to come back in from China. And I think it allowed Chinese people to come back in as long as they transited another city. Mm-hmm. Australia closed the borders completely. 
And in addition to, and after requiring returning Australians to self-isolate for two weeks at home Mm -hmm. under threat of penalty, they then set up these quarantine hotels so that returning Australians coming in from abroad, who were the only people coming back, were actually, I mean, you'd get off the plane and the police were there and you all get in, you all get put in a bus and you get taken to a four-star hotel that has been commandeered by the cops and the army and you stay there under police guard for two weeks uh, until you're released out of quarantine back into the community. And were you forced to same- vote then or just the, that's every election? <laughs> you know what happens when you force people to vote, by the way? You end up with a prime minister named Scott. <laughs> so, and of course, Scott. in a true Australian style, we don't call him Scott. We call him either Scotto. Scotto. We either call him... <laughs> we either call him and he used to be a marketing guy before he was prime minister. So we either call him Scotty from marketing... <laughs> Or, <laughs> or because his name is Scott Morrison, we call him Skymo. <laughs> uh, and so at the same time, one thing that's interesting, though, is that so Australia, long story short, basically eliminated community spread altogether up until about four weeks ago. In, in May, we got it down to almost zero through a combination of a lockdown, uh, an early fast quite hard lockdown, although never quite as severe as a lot of places. So, you know, this sort of bucks the the rumor about uh, places requiring incredibly intense lockdowns to be able to vanquish the virus. The beaches were always open as long as you didn't sit on them and congregate on them. You could go in for a surf. You could go outside. Coffee shops and so restaurants Australians never closed. Were never locking up like wave, wake borders. No, borders. we were never doing. We were okay. never doing the absolutely everything is boarded up and we're yeah. all off the streets. Chasing we were still allowed off the to, beach. Like you were allowed to jog. You were allowed to. That. Yeah, you were allowed to go to the beach for okay. a walk or a jog or to okay. go for a surf. Um, and uh, but obviously people were working from home. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the main thing was massive ramping up of, of testing, mm-hmm. a public, a universal public health system that was allocating limited tests on the basis of epidemiological need rather than on the basis of whether or not you have insurance that's going to enable you to get a test. Uh, centralized lab testing, like Germany has as well. So you know it, there was less haphazardness in the processing of tests. And the big difference as well that I think the states never quite got around was contact tracing. And uh, basically the Australian government hired thousands of workers who'd been furloughed from Qantas, the national airline, to form an army of contact tracers to call people who had been in contact with people who'd been infected so that you could track them and get them tested and get them isolated. So the combination of sealing the border, uh, quarantining all returning Australians, having massive testing and contact tracing everybody meant that the lockdown didn't have to be too severe. It was eight weeks of, you know, not being allowed to do much. And we got it down to pretty much zero. Yeah. So what went wrong in the past few weeks? In Victoria, the state where Melbourne is, the second most populous state, instead of having the cops and the army run the quarantine hotels, they outsourced that to private security firms. Sorry, libertarians. And the (laughs) the private security firms the bouncers who were working at them started fucking the incoming arrivals. <laughs> oh, yeah. And, uh, and then going back out the Don't hate. I think, I think, don't you, I think you just made the best case for libertarianism I've ever heard in my <laughs> that's life. That's exactly right. The first time it involved fucking, that's <laughs> and, all that's and this is sure. an important. And this is an important factoid. I was unaware of the fact that all Australian police officers are eunuchs, so they yeah. can't actually yeah. fuck incoming <laughs> tourists, <laughs> which, is a, which is unfortunate for them yes. and the tourists. Yeah. So the but tourists were getting the been... D and also getting a bonus, COVID, <laughs> which is great. So what's how been could annoying that have gone badly? 
What's been annoying to me, though, is that every time I mentioned that, that America could have done, like, could have made a choice to do something like this, uh-huh. Americans are constantly responding, saying that it's there's no comparison because Australia has 25 million people and the US has 330 million people, uh-huh. but not recognising that what can you, uh, any of you explain to me why that makes a pinch of difference actually I mean, it, makes it's an, all, everything it makes an scale. extraordinary it makes an extraordinary amount of difference it, it is everything why? is scale but the fact that you have twenty thousand versus three hundred thousand spread out over actually similar land masses right i think australia and uh, america are kind of similar sizes i mean the number of actual local municipalities that you're dealing with and the fact that, that it's actually illegal for the federal government to do many of the things that a lot of folks imagine they could do like institute a nationwide, a nationwide lockdown. It's illegal. You can't do that. It's unconstitutional. Like that's actually no, no, no. quite the, difficult. Just to so clarify I, though, so Australia just, is also a federation. So the federal government didn't do it. The states did it right. and they coordinated. The federal government the set states, up a, the states a national cabinet yeah. and, the, and the states, the states all coordinated and they did it at different rates and they yeah. did it at different paces. And when, now that when this, uh, this most recent breakout happened in um in victoria they mm-hmm. sealed the border between victoria and new south wales new south wales did wow. now that, yeah. that is actually unconstitutional but it, it, by the time it gets decided by this by the high court yeah uh, everything's going to be over yeah I, I think the other the other issue for the united states though is just what well, we didn't lock down immediately all over the country straight away um and you know one can say in hindsight it would have been better had we done that i think that's that's pretty obvious um but since they didn't do that given the circumstance we were actually looking at with people coming in from all over and actually seeding the virus in various places all at once, particularly so many people seeding it in New York, like the actual challenge that the United States found itself facing, um, having already fucked up the testing, which I think we've said many times on the podcast is almost certainly the most egregious mistake that was made here in the United States. The the fact that, yeah, I mean, I think you just put your finger on it, Camille, which is not that that the U S is big. The, the, the main difference, quite apart from the mismanagement, the Mm -hmm. main reason why it was easier for Australia initially is that we don't have New York city that was getting seeded with the virus long before anyone knew that the virus existed. It's quite probable that throughout December and Mm -hmm. January, there was there was there was a, a large number of uh, of cases there, but what you could have done then is once you knew about it, you could have like sealed off the, the tri-state and, area, for example. Yeah, and yeah. yeah, I mean, there were things that could be done. It doesn't have to do with the size. Yeah, because you know a lot of people say, well, Australia's remote. Well, not from Asia, it's not. We're one of the most Asian countries in the world, and the traffic between China and Australia. I mean, we are the most Asianized Western country because sure. of where we're located. People say it's sparse. You just mentioned it, the same size as, as the states. No, it's one of the most urbanized countries. We just sell you guys on the bullshit that we're all Paul Hogan and Crocodile Dundee. <laughs> we all we all live in a handful of gigantic cities. Yeah, I mean, yeah. half the population lives in about three cities. So right. actually, if you look at the urbanization rates, in terms of transmission, we live more cheek by jowl no, than Americans true. do. We don't have the big spread out suburbia that America yeah, does. So and people, people say to me, oh, well, total. it's easy for you. Mm-hmm. They say it's easy for you because you're on an island. And right. I'm like, oh, is the problem in America that that foot traffic is walking in from Canada and Mexico? <laughs> is that the problem? <laughs> no, it's, Mexico, it's the caravans from Mexico. The Canadians walking over yeah. is a problem, but Although, for other reasons. I think we'd like to get over there now. But I, I do think you're right. I mean, 25 million is the population of Australia. Uh, Sydney has what, like almost what, five and a half, five and a quarter million? Yeah, look at you. 
They did, and I think the size the size does matter. It is easier to lock down a country when it's really, really small and when you have fewer folks that you actually have to engage with. And yes. like marshalling resources across the entire country, and especially when you have this regional um, explosion of cases in a place like New York, which also the media capital of the world, which I think probably induced a great deal of COVID exhaustion well before it was a major problem in most other parts of the country. Yeah. Like the, the fact is that people were kind of burnt out by the pandemic before the wave even got to them. I think that's another great point. Now, that's why I raised the point of if Australia was a state, it would be the third largest state, because I think what a wise leader in America would have done is, re is regarded this or acknowledged that this is a regionalized crisis in America. Mm -hmm. And you're right in a way that it didn't, that it, it, it's not in the in Australia because Australia is basically two big cities. Yeah. Uh, sorry to everyone who doesn't live in Sydney and Melbourne in Australia who's listening, but really the Northeast should have been treated completely differently. And the, and it would have been silly to lock down all of the United States all at the same time. You would lock down the areas that need locking down mm -hmm. just as they've currently re-locked down Melbourne just as a city and one other region in Victoria while yeah. everything else is 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 back to normal but i'm just saying and it would be harder in america everything's harder in america it's way way more complicated but you know trying something might have been better than nothing i'm with you the, the thing about it is that i when i talk to people about this and what their knowledge of what covid is and how it affected america versus other places particularly in western europe you realize how politicized this has become because we see it entirely through the prism of, you know, Donald Trump and mm -hmm. whatever state, whatever governor of Florida, for instance. Right. Uh, you know, and, 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 you know, when you look at New York, and we've said this a number of times in the podcast, I mean, an absolute hash of it. I mean, look at how horrible and the number of people that died in New York. And at the same time, we're saying, God, you know, really Cuomo does great press conferences. He's so good at this stuff. And yeah. we want him to be president. There are people actually taking polls to see how he was lining up against the corpse and the psychopath. And then I had this other one who has like, you know, a mountain of dead old people next to him. But you forget this thing. And I just looked this up because I used to, do, we used to do this on the podcast all the time, but then other stuff happened and we, we changed focus. But this is still where it has been when you look at the deaths per million, which is the actual number to look at because new infections depends on how many people are being tested, et cetera. It's an inaccurate uh, number. But number one is still Belgium. Nobody talks about what did Belgium, Be Belgium do to screw up. We talk about what Sweden did to screw up. We talk about what Donald Trump did to screw up, all of which, uh, Florida, all of which are relevant. But number one is Belgium. Number two, United Kingdom. Number three, Spain, Italy, Sweden, France, and the U.S., the U.S. is behind. But Michael, I think I th Michael, I think it's really important to to think about when the deaths are happening because if you're Italy or Spain or New York, then you got hit long before anyone could could reasonably expect to know about what was going on, and you, you know we just didn't understand well enough what was happening. I don't happening. think we do now. The situation, either. the situation in, I mean, the situation like Florida and the U.K. are inexcusable. They had time. They could have figured it out. I mean, they they just dawdled for so long that the 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 fact that those deaths are occurring but do at the pace know, of, though, Josh, at the rate that they are. Do we know what the appropriate way of handling this when you look at Sweden and the U.S. You know, kind of contemporaneous uh, issues 
and they're very similar numbers. Sweden's a little higher. And Sweden had, you know, no mandatory lockdown. There was a lot of kind of voluntary stuff that was happening. And it wasn't, as people were saying, you know, a bustling metropolis like it normally is and people going out to, to cinemas and things like that. That wasn't happening. But for instance, take something like schools. I mean, I saw in The Guardian yesterday, or it, I mean, it was, maybe it was a Reuters piece uh, in The Guardian about a study in Germany that could find no transmissions at schools at all. And they were saying, like, basically, there's no issue with schools. And, and well, this comes back to what I was saying in the U.S., which is like this is obviously not solved and we don't know what but to do. And blah, an blah, important blah. caveat there, and, and I'm someone who's who's advocated for the schools to be opened uh, in New York, especially elementary schools. Um, but after during, initially advocating that they be closed. Yes, because because yes, we learned. But Germany has almost no cases. So like the the regional variation is important. And in fact, New York and the Northeast, having gone through the body piles, um, now has really low infection rates and really low everything. So it's more appropriate to yeah. talk about the schools in New York and in Germany. Um, it doesn't necessarily mean that's going to be a great idea in Israel, for example, right now, which is having a, a big problem mm. in reinfections and also a school. Infection. But isn't, I mean, the issue here, though, is that, I mean, it seems like we have it backwards. We're keeping kids at home rather than keeping teachers at home who are old and vulnerable because it appears that kids are not affected by this in any significant way or not in a way that old people are affected by it, obviously. And the other thing that, you know, those guys at Unheard, which have been doing the kind of heterodox uh, view on COVID from the beginning, actually. Yeah, they've, they've tried to do a little bit of balance. They but, tried to do a little yeah. balance, and, and they had, uh, what's his name on, uh, Neil Ferguson, mm -hmm. who's now disappeared because he was... He was uh, having sex with somebody and during lockdown. Every, everybody's got to bury a bone. You know, by the way, <laughs> everybody's got to do it. I defend yeah. him. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, he wasn't having sex with a lot of people. And he just he already woman. had COVID. He already had it. <laughs> He'd already had it. He already had it. And the woman was like, I love it. <laughs> it Let's get it. She's like a bug yeah. chaser. She you was in it. give her the thing. Yeah. I mean, I, I do it. You got to give her saw, that thing. And then I saw him on the He's interview. Selfish. And I was like, who the fuck is really that guy? Yeah. You're, you're, we, we should get him hired as one of the Australian security guards <laughs> at the quarantine hotels. Yeah. Shag his brains out. Is, are you guys still calling them quarantine hotels? Is that what it is? Yes. Jails after about a month. Oh, my God. Here's. But I think you make a good point, Michael, which is that there's a there is a I, I don't want to come across as someone who is doctrinaire on the side of everyone should be locking down and we have to be terrified and, mm -hmm. you know, the lockdown should go on forever at all. I mean, in Australia, the schools schools actually never fully closed. They were uh -huh. kept open. Uh, everyone was encouraged not to come. But if you were, you know, a household, if you were a nurse who was a single mother, you could still send your child to into a school and yeah. they could be taught. And there were online classes as well. And in terms of daycare, the federal government just said, all right, we're going to pick up. They, they, you know, basically the daycare sector, the, the you know, the what do you call it? They're pre-K. Mm -hmm. They basically came to the federal government and they said, we're going to collapse completely because everyone's pulling their kids out. And the federal government said, all right, keep sending your kids to daycare epidemiologically it's low risk low risk we're going to pick up the tab and they worked out a funding model where for the past up until this week my kids have been going five days a week uh hmm. to, for free to daycare for i guess the past like 15 weeks or something so yeah it's been a bit of a mix and a bit of a hodgepodge and they've pretty much just followed the, the advice of health experts all the way without trying to get drawn into these ideological battles about lockdown or not lockdown which has ended up meaning and this is the thing that I wish I could get into the heads of the people who were anti-lockdown initially. Mm. My life is basically back to normal 
knock on wood in Sydney. I mean, mm-hmm. I'm going into the office. We're all going about. Restaurants are open. Gyms are open. With the exception of large concerts and raves, everything is back to normal because we didn't listen to the advice of the people who were opposing the lockdown in the first place. Well, I- like, if you want to get out of the mm-hmm. lockdown, you got to lock down to get out of the lockdown. And just lastly, on the point of, mm-hmm. of Sweden, Michael, I mean, you know that Sweden is, like, not in a good way and is the is of it, it has more deaths than all of the nordic countries combined so mm. so mm-hmm. norway finland denmark and iceland combined have like a quarter the deaths of sweden and now they're going about their normal lives as well so mm. yeah you can say like ah oh, the swedes didn't have to lock down but no, they no, could I, have and i'm not defending i mean initially it looked like this was a good idea and i defended it initially and then i started sort of changing my mind as these numbers changed i mean there are of course differences in Sweden, too, um, you know, particularly the way I mean, I, when I looked at the numbers from the Swedish government and they're very good at these things, Swedes are very good at keeping keeping <laughs> records. Um, and you can go on the, the uh, health ministry's website. And I think that the last time that I looked, the percentage of the of people, I think it was 85 percent or something, almost 90 percent uh, were over 75. And it was it was entirely localized in, you know, old folks homes. And there were some Swedish people that I talked to, because, of course, I used to live in Sweden, that said one of the reasons this is happening and so brutal in Sweden is because of the way we kind of warehouse old people that they don't do in Norway and they don't do in Finland. Um, and I don't know. I, I can't say that that's true or not. But somebody that I know who works at a think tank there, uh, who is trustworthy and has every reason to hate the social democratic government, which is why you have people that are it's, it's backwards in Sweden, of course. Uh, the right of center people in Sweden are adamantly opposed to the the anti-lockdown strategy. And two kind of right-leaning people that I knew in Sweden wrote a piece for the Washington Post saying that this is a, a, a tremendously bad idea. And I realized, oh, God, that's that's because because it's a social democratic government. <laughs> that's why. <laughs> Otherwise, they probably wouldn't Zeppo, uh, I've, a quick, um, Zeppo Marks. A quick uh, uh, fact question. So... Did you ever have an actual like quarantine with your kids or did they have daycare throughout this? Uh, I withdrew them from uh, being a little bit of a, a science nerd and an epidemiological wonk. And since I was on the air talking to experts <laughs> so back in February, I, uh, I actually pulled them out of daycare when people still thought I was crazy. I was kind of the chicken little here. I was like the guy online buying the toilet paper before anyone <laughs> knew that there was a problem. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, so I voluntarily pulled them out for nine weeks. Uh, okay. There was never a period where daycare closed. We, so we were all, wow. yes, I was doing the, we're, we're in self-isolation, we're working from home, we're all going crazy, we're driving each other up the wall for about two and a half months. Okay, basically. I just wanted and to then, make sure then, that, that you had in. some yeah. of the crazy too. Just not <laughs> oh, just totally, us. totally. Oh, man, yeah, totally. Well, I, I want to I move on to some of the other things, but I, I, last, last thing here, and then I'll give you the last word, Josh. Um, I think it is fair to say that the story is still being written here in terms of how this all plays out and what the right strategy is. Um, it is certainly the case that in certain countries, like life is being sort of resumed as normal. Um, it is, I think, easier uh, in some cases to imagine that sort of being sustained in places like New Zealand and Australia, which while Australia is very large um, and does in fact have more people than New Zealand, like it is an island country. And keeping people out from abroad is not so difficult. In Europe, where the borders are a bit closer together and people can kind of drive from one place to the next or take a train, um, the possibility of severe second waves and infections from abroad 
and rolling perpetual lockdowns um, is like very real and is likely to be a reality for much of the world, um, including the United States of America, which happens to just cover a large land area and is experiencing these sort of regional outbreaks. And I think one thing I'd say about the lockdown or NAW debate is I'm not sure that it's fair to say that it was ever a, a situation where there were people who said, don't lock down anything. There are people who said that maybe. There are some people, but right. I think that there is a smart anti-lockdown crowd. And I'd, I'd like to think that I am, I am somewhat a part of that in that I believed that it was almost certainly appropriate to take certain dramatic steps early on when we were a bit uncertain about what we were dealing with. Um, but that the goal of those lockdowns, and I think you underscored some of these same themes, um, Josh, is that it should be sort of serious and data-driven, um, that it ought to be regional and targeted. And I think the important thing that I was advocating for long ago is that it ought to be a regime that actually allows for the development of like resiliency and actual innovation and people mm. and businesses hardening themselves so that we can figure out how to live with a thing that is likely to be a reality for our species for the indefinite future. The possibility that we early on the conversation around lockdowns was not lockdown or not. It was, we have to lock down now, maybe for 13 months or longer mm -hmm. or else. And we have to mm. shut down and pause the economy. Like that was what was being said in January or February before we had any idea how far this had spread in the United States. And when we were still getting like bizarre misinformation out of China and in retrospect, it's easy to say, you know, we shouldn't have trusted those motherfuckers. Like they were lying. It was terrible. It was the worst thing, but we didn't know, you know, I'd just come back from Hong Kong in the middle of January uh, towards the end of the month. Like the world was at least sort of sufficiently safe that I'm wandering around Hong Kong. All, people are wearing masks as they do, but everyone is shaking my hand. But that hand. was a default Asian thing, right? That's yeah, how you that's what I'm saying. Yeah. Everyone's yeah. shaking my hand. Yeah. You know, we're, we're in close proximity. <laughs> yeah. They hadn't locked down yet. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's challenging, um, but, you know, it's weird. I don't know how the history will be written, um, but I do think that as we get a little further away from the beginning, from the origins of the crisis, that the narrative around this will almost certainly sort of settle in a way <laughs> that is perhaps not actually reflective of just how uncertain and bizarre the situation was early on and just where the the actual sides were in terms of the the folks advocating for do everything now, don't do anything, um, and never lock down the country because it's just the flu. Josh? No, I totally I totally take – I mean, I agree with almost all of that. Um, starting with the, the concern <laughs> about Europe, I mean, in Europe, they are going to face – until there is univer a universal vaccine, mm -hmm. it's going to be really hard in Europe because of the porous borders. The United States, I think, is a different – case mm -hmm. and you could have made the uh the the gamble that australia and new zealand have made which is mm -hmm. uh we i mean for people should understand for australia to lock off the rest of the world is a big deal it's Dramatic, actually yeah. a bigger deal for us than it would be for america to block off the rest of the world i mean australia's australia is more porous and more reliant on incoming i mean one you know two of our larger two of our biggest five industries are tourism and international students who come from Asia to study at Australian universities. Now, like those are decimated. Those are out the window. Yeah. 
And, uh, you know, then you look at the film industry, which is also a big deal here. You look at the television industry. Um, I mean, there's a, it's, and isn't it's it also a, seasonal workers that would come in and actually, you know, pick things and do stuff that, uh, that we would have here in the U S they can too. grow stuff no, in Australia. No, they, they, yeah. <laughs> they grow misery. They grow <laughs> little plots of anyway, sadness. I would, I would, <laughs> I would just say, Camille, if you're right that this is going to be an indefinite thing that we're going to have to deal with indefinitely into the future, then Australia probably made the wrong call, and it probably should have found a way to just deal to just live with it. Mm. What I think the the gamble is is that within the next twelve months we get some kind of uh, vaccine so. that's going to normalise things sufficiently yeah. that the economy can open back up because we can't sustain this. What we can do is hold off and keep breathing. The government put in some clever economic recovery policies whereby, for example, instead of giving people unemployment when they got fired, the government just started paying businesses to not fire people. Hmm. So every business that could prove that it had a 30% decline in – Camille is like nodding his head like, well, we sounds did that a little too. bit socialist. I, it's, it's less that it sounds socialist and more that – I mean sometimes businesses just need to fire people so that they can move on to find yes, other opportunities but the thinking, the the thinking was like The thinking was this stuff, isn't going to you know? last forever. The thinking yeah. was this, this system ends at the end of September, okay? So everyone's mm-hmm. already looking down the barrel of what's going to happen. But basically it was a flat Extend benefits, fee. Probably. You got paid <laughs> You got paid $750 a week for each employee that you had and yeah. that was that and it was just as long as you don't get rid of them you keep getting paid that money pass Which it on to the employee model. and figure it out well, in we october had exactly but it was significantly different. yeah ppp ppp is is definitely significantly different it was trying to accomplish the same goal and I, my suspicion my it's strong suspicion is we'll keep, probably keep have to do people. something similar what yeah. I've, I've i've come to the realization and perhaps this is no surprise to anyone else but it's just like dawning on me hard the degree to which like the next decade is going to be a story of much bigger government, lots of entitlement and spending and bailouts. And there is almost no constituency whatsoever to do anything other than that. And I think it was already trending that way. Yeah, anyway. that was but again, Camille, so here's the thing. It, mm-hmm. the, ironically, the countries that did the biggest, fastest, most targeted throw money at everything bailouts are, I think, going to be the ones that find it easier to pull back because the, the private sector will have recovered better. We'll see. Uh, and I, yeah. I think in the States, you're going to you're going to need more of this ongoing, this ongoing rolling uh, support in the same way that you'll need more ongoing rolling kind of coronavirus chaos uh, you know in the it's sort of analogous to the to the lockdown you go early and you go fast so that you don't need to keep doing it yeah. and i think that next year in australia there'll be no more support than there than there was hopefully in 2019 because i ain't no socialist now <laughs> well, um, right. and i'll also Wall just Street lastly agrees, on, by the way on stats it, 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 bounces, on it bounces every time Wall the Street fed does, yes every time <laughs> that there's a promise of government intervention yeah um and you know a, a new allocation of uh, of money the market surges. Yeah. Well, I don't, I don't, I don't put any faith whatsoever in the stock market as an indicator of much, except how insane everything I is. Just, but you're not day trading as much as Michael. No, my, Moynihan is a fucking. Psychopath. I'm doing great though. Yeah, um, uh, <laughs> that's what they're really taking advantage of this. Is every this is every day trader's story. I just I, want you to know that. You look it's at my, not how it ends. Look at my balance sheet. I'm doing good. I know. This is um, everyday trader story. Well, I, I, do, I do small amounts. That's why I'm, I'm, not, I'm not risking anything. That's what, I don't have okay. a lot to risk. Good. The one final thing about this I want to say is something I wanted to tweet uh, Please earlier. Please get to the Patreon so the Michael Moynihan can fund his day trading <laughs> I addiction. <don't>. Um, <laughs> is this story that went around the world, uh, um, and this is the headline in the New York Times, and you'll probably all remember this, Texas Hospital says man 30... 30-year-old man died attending, quote, 
uh, COVID party. Right. Mm. Uh, the New York Post, I thought it was a hoax. The patient who was in their 30s told their nurse moments before passing away. Kind, oh, of, kind of cinematic and perfect, oh isn't it? Um, New York Daily News, a 30-year-old coronavirus a patient said it thought it was a hoax before dying and going to a Corona party. So I clicked on the time story because it didn't, it was really weird that I just didn't sound right. There's, but what's the comorbidity here? I mean, was this somebody that had type two diabetes? Was this somebody? So the time story, which is amazing about setting narratives and because it's always this idea that anybody, it, it can affect all of us. Every time there was somebody young who got it, they got front and center in, in the newspaper. And then we looked a little deeper and found that there was something else there. Not always the case, but often. And the New York Times story, the fourth paragraph, the fourth paragraph says this. The Times could not independently verify Dr. Appleby's account. On Monday, the San Antonio Health Department said its contract tra tracers did not have any information, quote, that would Oof. confirm or deny that such an event had happened there. So they don't have anyone who's met this person except for one doctor who did a video online, right? And it's spread all over. The New York Times is doing a story and then telling you that we don't know if it's a story. There's not two sources here. There's one single person. And I had a guy who listened to this show, and I won't mention his name because he was he was uh, a bit, had was sending the emails that he was uh, sending back and forth with the New York Times. And the New York Times had a Sunday Times magazine story by a woman who's, I think, a Columbia um, a professor in the medical school there. And she did a couple of shifts. And she told this harrowing story. And this guy said it can't be true. And was emailing uh, Dean Baquet, emailing everyone. And they were just really mean to him and dismissing. He was supporting me all the emails. Until ultimately, like three weeks later, they said, yeah, this actually this story is not real. Oh. And they appended a correction to it and never mentioned it. So there is actually a big New York Times story, magazine story that had this real kind of, you know, pulling the heartstrings. And it's an amazing thing about this is that when we need information, because we have so little and what we do have, it's hard to kind of parse what it means for those of us who aren't, you know, epidemiological nerds like Josh. <laughs> I didn't know that was a thing, but, you know, uh, it's, uh, I'll just leave it at There's that. a lot you don't know about me, Moynihan. Yeah, 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 a lot you don't I'm know about my what that actually means. And, uh, but there's, there's this thing that like, I don't know what the hell's going on and the information that you're getting is fluctuating all the time. And a lot of these personal stories that are somehow getting into the mainstream media that in another context would be like, no, we can't run this. We don't have any sources on this. Yeah. We have one person that said this and the New York times, big headline. This went everywhere. You guys had heard this story, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm sure course. you heard it, Josh. You heard about COVID parties yeah, all the time. And it was that one yeah. false anecdote about that one guy dying that caused Barry Weiss to quit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the transition. Yeah. Thank yeah. you for the Thank transition, you, Josh. You're like, welcome. We, You're welcome. Well, well, they canceled him. Well, let's, let's, let's talk about Barry Weiss, our, our very good friend who has been trending. And it's, it's one of those things. Every time I see like Barry's name on the side of my uh, screen, uh, one, I know that she's not dead. I just presume everyone is angry at her. Yeah. And once again, everyone is angry at her. But it, this time it was big news. <laughs> it was sufficiently big news that it ran on the front page of the New York Times. No, it did not. No. The front page of the Washington Post. No. Right the New York Post. The New York Washington, Post. The New York Post. Yes. Yeah, they had a cover. Didn't the Washington Post also on the cover. I actually I don't yeah, know what was on the cover. No, You're right. The New, York New, York Post. Post. New York Post. Sorry. Yeah. But in any case, by the yeah. way, can I also just say yeah. it's the page two. It's a full page, page two story on the Daily Telegraph in Sydney, which is the the, the biggest wow. selling uh, newspaper, the, wow. the the Rupert Murdoch tabloid. Yeah, wow. News Corp. Thing, I, yeah. I do not. Un there's a degree to which I don't understand this. Right. 
But there's another sense in which it's totally appropriate. I mean, journalists like talking about themselves. And I'm glad that everyone is paying attention to this. Um, Not only because I love Barry and I think she's a phenomenal human. Despite the fact that we've had disagreements about different things. And if you go back and listen to the conversation for the podcast, podcast, there are things that we disagree about. Yeah. But I think she's wonderful and adorable. And I find it interesting that she is at the center of this weird firestorm. And I would commend to people the letter that the letter of resignation that Barry wrote, mostly because it paints this picture of what it was like for her to work inside of the New York Times building. And there are a couple of choice quotes in here that I think are worth including in the podcast for posterity. So I'll read it, probably fumble over it a little bit, but it's fine. You go back and read it for yourself. Twitter is not on the masthead of the New York Times, but Twitter has become its ultimate editor as the ethics and mores of the platform have become those of the paper. The paper itself has increasingly become a kind of performance space. Stories are chosen and told in a way to satisfy the narrowest of audiences, rather than to allow curious, a curious public to read about the world and draw their own conclusions. I was always taught that journalists were charged with writing the first draft of history. Now, history itself is one more ephemeral thing molded to fit the needs of a predetermined narrative. That last bit is almost certainly a shot across the bow of one mm-hmm. particular person at the New York Times, <laughs> um, but it's also lit, and it seems true. And the thing that I find, there are two things about this resignation, and I'll, I'll toss to you after this, Josh. One is the characterization of the change that's taking place in the New York Times and the degree to which the sort of editorial process there has kind of been hijacked by the this new kind of attitude and climate, which I think is something we've been talking about here for a while. Um, but the other aspect of this, which whatever you think about Barry Weiss and whatever you think about the specter of cancel culture and whether or not it's real, the the kind of treatment that Barry was receiving inside the building. Yeah. Um, and it is worth noting that there are certainly some people at the times who have disagreed with the characterization in her um, letter, um, but also some coworkers who have co-signed it. And I will say <laughs> that I have, I have personally yeah. corroborated the assertions that are made in here about yeah. the abuse that she was taking on the Slack channel. And you know, OJ said he didn't do it. That too, does not right? mean that Barry showed me things. <laughs> I know plenty of people and I've, I've, I've seen it. So I'm putting my reputation on the line and saying it's not bullshit. There are, there are Slack posts with ax emojis next to Barry's name. And this harassment was in fact taking place. And Camille, to point, whatever out, snowflake. To, to point out Camille, that both of us have talked to people who are not Barry Wise. Uh-huh. Uh, and multiple people. Yeah. Um, I talked to somebody else at the New York Times um, who sometimes, the one person in my, uh, I know who, you, who, who you've been speaking to. I've spoken um, to a couple people. Yeah, that, that I know that they don't agree with Barry on, on everything and have confirmed to me that this stuff is true. And they confirmed to me as it was happening, not as a result of this mm-hmm. letter. That's right. Um, you know, because it, it happens in this time now. I think it was actually bad in some way that Andrew Sullivan, uh, I don't want to say resigned because I don't know yet. Mm-hmm. I think he was probably fired. Mm. Um, that's my guess. Mm-hmm. And you know how these things work, actually, in 2020. You're made to not want to be there anymore until you're forced to resign. And I think that when you tell somebody you cannot write about the biggest news story 
on Earth, mm. which he was told that he couldn't write about George Floyd. Mm-hmm. Um, that's, you know, the, the writings on the wall at that point. But also really interesting, by the way, that any, has anyone pointed out? This is why, uh, Josh, you uh, should be, you obviously are aware of this. It used to be uh, interesting that you were gay. No longer. And I've mentioned Andrew to this to Andrew a million times in the show that he said I used to be a gay man. Now, now I'm just cis. Is, uh, <laughs> is that you know, I'm, I'm, to, a, a gay woman and a gay man both uh, resign in a kind of cancel culture storm, and no one mentions that. Yeah, but, not, yeah, yeah. really interesting that actually, and that's I think a sign of progress in some ways. But it's actually in this case that you know people just hate their politics, and it doesn't matter what they are; they'll just uh, try to destroy them. But yeah, I, I mean, th- that this has happened inside the Times from people who profess to, you know, be big hearted, to be the kind of, you know, lefties of the Times, to not like bullying. But good God, was it brutal. And that's the thing that, you know, I, I suppose for legal reasons and for a lot of other reasons, there are not examples in her letter. There is actually an indication that Barry was leaving open the possibility of legal action in that letter. I'm no legal expert. I'm no legal expert, but... <laughs> yeah, yeah, it. um, yeah, come on. And so come obviously on. these examples uh, are not there, but some of this stuff in the past was leaked, as Matt, you pointed out uh, today on a text uh, thread, to the Huffington Post. Mm-hmm. And in a way that was supposed to make Barry look bad, by the way. Yeah. And it just made the people who leaked it, leaked it look bad. Can you believe that we hate this woman so much in yeah. 2018? <laughs> Josh, can I ask you just a question before, before you get into the specifics of this? At your current employer, which is obviously different because it's a state-funded broadcaster and it's in its charter that it cannot be partisan or ideological in any particular direction. Which I'm sure they pay absolutely, perfect heed to at perfect all heed to. times yes. in a way that yeah. all conservative <laughs> listeners and viewers yes. feel completely satisfied <laughs> about. Go on. But if, if, with that type of thing, because I think about it and I'm seeing it more and more in various people telling me similar things are happening, that that kind of just out and out bullying, and I have to say that that is the appropriate word, of a fellow employee and staff member on public, public Slack channels, and I mean public within the New York Times, not, you know, messages sent to each other. And, and also, kind of and also Twitter. And, you know, and, and Twitter, too, yeah. is that, you know, I can't, I just can't imagine that any place that I've ever worked in the past would allow an employee to go onto Twitter and denounce another employee because of their political opinions or, or, or whatnot. And, you know, in, in fairness, Barry... Uh, herself got involved in that too. I mean, she was t- tweeting about the Times um, at the end uh, when she was talking about the Tom Cotton editorial. Um, right, but she wasn't saying, you know, X no, person yeah, is she a douchebag. She didn't name Not people. at all. She was describing Not the general sort of I just generally, it's, I think it's still surprising to me after, you know, a number of years in this business that people talk about their employer publicly on Twitter. But that's actually, and, and answer the question, Josh, and I'm sorry to step on it, but like that's actually a, a huge part of the last eight weeks, eight insane nervous breakdown weeks yeah. of American media. I don't know if it's happening in, you know, third world countries, Josh, but, uh, <laughs> uh, but like, is that, is that a lot of these beefs are happening because 25-year-olds who work for newspapers are complaining about their bosses on Twitter yeah. and then like trying to get support there and oftentimes getting it. Yeah. Um, and then everyone sort of swarms against their uh, bosses, which is just kind of a new thing, or the slacks become public. But uh, Josh, um, is there a dedicated Slack channel 
at the ABC about what a douchebag Josh Zepps is yet. Or, and it's there, not. So much, <laughs> there is so Weiss. much consensus, I think, in Australia about what a douchebag Josh Zepps is. <laughs> that, that we don't need an internal slack about that. Uh, I can't imagine, uh, to answer that question directly, I can't imagine working in an environment where that sort of thing is tolerated between employees. That mm. just is so far from my personal experience that I can't, I can't conceive of it. But what there is here is i mean when you say that when you sort of jokingly say that australian conservatives are probably uh, not that pleased with the uh, the how impartial the abc is when i was last year i was on the tv on the abc as well i had to give it up because i was doing too much stuff but on the weekends i i presented the um well you guys say hosted the morning show like on the on from 6 to 10 a.m. and on saturday and sunday <sighs> and the deluge oh of criticism that i would get I had to look up what an FRWNJ is because everyone was saying that I was an FRWNJ, which what? apparently stands for Fucking a far wrong, right nuts. wing nut job. <laughs> oh wow. my God, I wow. guessed it. Wow. That's great. Yeah, that's, I just, I'm so Australian. I, am. I guess Paul and, and that. I mean, wow. This is what people are saying, you know, on the, the Sunday morning show. Wake up, you cunt. That's called. Um, so, I promise I've never seen that show. That is the best show. Uh, and Josh, so and Josh the host, is that amazing. was the name of the show. That yeah, was, yeah. I can't believe you just nailed it. It was yeah. Wake Up You Cunts, yeah, and Josh said. Yeah, yeah, every Saturday and Sunday morning. Uh, another acronym. Yeah. Uh, oh so, God. that, and, but and, I mean, I'm regarded as being that because, uh, and, you know, if anyone, in terms of identity politics, when you say that, it's, when you talk about the fact that uh, we're, we're no longer being judged for being gay. We're now judged for being far right wing nut jobs. I, you know, I, I will always pull out the gay Jew card when I can. Anyone who would criticize being a far right wing nut job, yeah, yeah. if they were like, That's if they were like, you know, you're you're a terrible presenter, I would always be like, your your rank homophobia and anti semitism <laughs> yeah, is deep yeah. to me. Right now. Roy Cohn um, tried but, that a few times, didn't work out so well for him. I mean, when when look when Barry Weiss was in Sydney, uh, I had her on the show, and we went and got lunch, and we kept in touch after that, and that was. Completely unremarkable conversations of this kind are unremarkable, I, I think, on the ABC. Uh, and I think Australia looks with a certain amount of uh, perplexed bemusement at the heat that with which these subjects have in America. Yeah. But I think Australia and many developed countries, you know, more developed than America, uh, looks always at American uh, cultural phenomena with a certain uh, level of detached bemusement because everything runs hotter in the States. It's part mm. of what I loved about the States. I mean, it's it's, it's such a fantastic but is it roiling. But there too? It, what is it? It's happening it? here in a slightly more effete and milquetoast way. What is what is it? Are we just, talking just about cancel culture? Yeah, that's that's yeah, homophobic, England, first of all. In, in, so. in England is the great, I mean, America is the great bellwether for what's going to happen in like sort of English universities and English media. And to you know, Josh's point, it happens in a kind of more restrained way, um, but it always happens. I mean, and people in England say, oh, we're watching this madness that's gripping the U.S., whether it's in the media or universities, and we expect it to be here in about a year and a half. I mean, is that also the case in Australia? Yes, I think there's a genuine fear. Like Jonathan Haidt came and did a, a speaking tour, and which I moderated last year to Australia and New Zealand, and we went, we travelled around from city to city, and he gave his his talk, and I then I interviewed him, and his message was basically, I am coming as the ghost of Christmas future from the United uh -huh. States, and the the phenomena that you are seeing on in the states is going to come here unless you guys shore yourselves up for the for the tsunami, and I think that message 
has landed. One of the benefits of being a medium-sized country and, and having the United States as our big brother is we can see the missteps and we can not follow them. I think that's happened on guns. That's happened on a number of cultural issues where Australia has quite self-consciously seen a vision of a path that it could go down and quite consciously avoided that. So I hope that I hope that people will want to pursue a different path. But the problem is that it's so tempting to think that you're right Mm. And so tempting to want to extinguish bad ideas that it really, it's a tricky, tricky time for all of us who, like I mentioned in the first episode of the podcast, I mentioned Camille, I mentioned you, Camille, in the first episode of my, of my podcast, Uncomfortable Conversations, which I everybody heard, should go and look up. disparaging um, me savagely, yeah. you monster. <laughs> <laughs> no, I was just talking, I was talking about how refreshing and unusual it was when you and I first met, when I had you on HuffPost Live as a guest and in the green room. Uh, I meant I made mention well, of the fact me. that you were black. Wow! And- <laughs> <laughs> that was wonderful. I Since took you I like a like no other guest I've ever taken. Camille, you love. I remember. Uh-huh. Uh And you said you're you're not black, and I thought that was. <laughs> Such an interesting thing to say. Um, <laughs> interesting. And then you went to the right, booker right and right said, "Oh, you booked yeah. a mentally ill person <laughs> who doesn't realize who he is. I'm Jesus. Who is this crazy yeah, psychopath yeah. in the green room that I just and, made I mean, love to?" <laughs> but I mean, I think what I, I think what we love about what we love about this show and what I'm trying to do on my show and what Barry was trying to do on the editorial page were similar things of having slightly heterodox, unusual conversations that don't necessarily fall along mm. a predictable partisan line, and that's that's something that I think has to be fought for. Uh, over and over again and you can never and and i don't think we're doing a good job because we're falling back too much on slogans like free speech Mm -hmm. and uh, and liberalism like and i don't want this to seem. i also don't want to fall into the camp of being oh this is the biggest problem in in the world like i want to give some credence to the other side that says okay there have been voices that haven't been heard systematically for a really long time and those voices are trying to assert themselves and i would say that's absolutely true and totally valid and we need to do a better job of hearing all those voices but that doesn't mean that when someone says something that you disagree with the response to that is to try to get that person fired or hounded by a mob. I think that for me is the difference that people seem incapable of understanding. Like I've even just gotten into arguments about Barry because I tweeted my support of her yesterday. And there are people saying, uh, oh, it turns out that this is, I'm directly quoting from someone on Twitter. It turns out that the group that can't take criticism and having their ideas challenged is the anti SJW intellectual dark web crew like you challenge them. And all of a sudden it's bullying and cancel culture. Yeah. And I try to make the point to these people. no, it's bullying and cancel culture if you try to get someone fired or harassed or hounded because of their beliefs. And it's not if you try to address the beliefs and oppose them on the merits of the belief. That's I don't right. know why to that's To that so point, hard. can you tell me, and I can't actually, and I know Barry, and I've known her for a long time. Can you tell me something that offended people, something she said that offended people that wasn't said when she was in college because um, people go back to so when she said these things in college, which I don't even know if that's true because I haven't, I'm not doing the work to go back and read the Columbia Spectator in you know 2007 or something. Although I will point out that David French, whose work at Fire back in the day was involved with protecting the free speech rights of college students and professors, defended what she did in college and uh-huh. said that it's we been, un- about that too. been yeah. unfairly maligned. Go on. Yeah, and it's just well, the thing is, is that it's. I remember a couple of things. One was that she tweeted her support for an immigrant. Yes. And that was, Immig- that was immigrants. We get the job. We get the job done. And it was a Hamilton who, quote. 
had it mm. was actually born in the states, but, but her, her parents, parents were immigrants, and yeah, she was she was called a monster for presuming but a, no, a normal this, person would be like, oh wrong. yeah, I guess she's, I know what she's saying. Yeah, that's what a normal person would do. Yeah. Um, and then the other one is an appearance when she was on Joe Rogan, and she said something about Tulsi Gabbard, mm-hmm. um, and when challenged on it, kind of like you know, spaced on, a, on some L, but either way, it's not yeah. nothing significant. I don't know what the objection to Barry is. Yeah. I, I, most of the objections I've seen don't. have been, have been of, of that sort of petty nature yeah. that she, um, quoted a tweet in an article of hers that turned out to be a phony tweet or a tweet from like a joke account or something like that. And the article like later had to be, uh, amended or modified because there's of that. no project at the New York but Times like, like a project for instance it's had to correct anything huh. that I can think of huh. like a project yeah. that has you know in, in the schools now yeah <laughs> I mean certainly nothing that has won a Pulitzer Prize <laughs> that that is you know riddled with inaccuracy and has been savagely criticized by all of the most lettered historians yeah. who actually study that topic I um, have I have a a, a theory and uh, uh-huh. and sorry to, to preempt you there no, Camille no. only a little bit no but, it's okay uh, Shadi Hamid, who, white people do all the time. Who, I'm used to it. Who is suffering in this country? A listener to the podcast mm-hmm. and a very interesting commentator on. Uh, and we should have right. him on. Yeah, we should. And yeah. writes the Atlantic and such. Mm-hmm. He uh, had a comment today on Twitter, talking, and I, I think smartly because uh, he agrees with me um, <laughs> about the asymmetry between the two sides that are talking to each other. I'm going to use my gloss on it and not his. Wait, did he use the word asymmetry? He or did. did you just, yeah, I knew that. He did. Yeah. Um, and, but I, I, I think I also mentioned that recently. No, he's suggesting you're not smart enough to use that <laughs> word on your own. Yes. At least well, no, I, you said he was going to put his own gloss it. on it. Yeah. I just wanted to know Correctly. which part was his gloss. At any rate, you he know? was, he was pointing out that basically the two sides, right? The two open letter sides. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and Josh was referencing this as well. Like, uh, they are having two different conversations. One one side is saying, hey, look, we're defending liberalism and free speech and these values that are important. The other side saying we're fighting systemic racism and injustice. Right. And those are kind of two different uh, conversations. And um, and so like things are getting mangled in between. Um, and uh, Shadi's point was that uh, that. They want the the other side, the uh, opposing Barry Weiss side, wants all of those people to lose their jobs. And I think that there's a more subtle distinction, which is that Barry Weiss, like Andrew Sullivan mm. and like a few other people, and maybe eventually Moynihan will be on this list if he's not already and, and other people, but like people who are known for talking uh, openly about like sort of like making at least a, a, a significant portion of their journalism project or their commentary project to be about critiquing the illiberalism of the left, hmm. right? So Barry is out there writing a big feature for the Sunday magazine about the intellectual dark web. People hate her for that. Yeah. yeah. They hate her actually right. for that yeah, yeah. much more that's right. than they hate her for whatever yeah. she Ever, said. Evergreen coverage as well. Yeah. The evergreen coverage, mm-hmm. the, the people got canceled, but they're all hanging out. She wrote that piece too. So she was always like writing those pieces. Yeah. The thing that got uh, characterized in Saturday Night Live, like the, the, you know, probing the edges of me too and saying right. like, I feel uncomfortable 
in the way that this is sort of uh, going against due process. It is for that that she is unforgivable. And Andrew Sullivan, too, in his own way, is unforgivable for that. So it's these edge cases of people who make at least part of their career about that. So it's it's I mean, Moynihan might have a lot of those views. But in fact, how much of his career, you know, maybe somewhat, let's cancel him too. But like, well, don't we all suffer from that a little, a little bit? I mean, I get, I get criticism for that, which I think is somewhat valid as well in mm-hmm. that people will say there are huge problems in the world. Why are you focusing on the way that your side, the left is, uh, you know, is, is fudging the ball and not doing things right instead of focusing on i don't know trump or like climate change or something like uh, something like that and my response would would just be like i want to talk about things where i have the most usefulness Uh to talk you know it doesn't just because i'm talking about this doesn't mean that i don't care more about other big problems but if everyone else is already doing a good job of that thing then you know if i see a niche where where someone is isn't saying something that i find refreshing then i want to be the contrarian who is making the point and engaging in a way that's going to stimulate people into thinking about something a way that they haven't thought you know what is the marginal so, utility of me being one extra person criticizing Trump? That's, that's, like, it doesn't, doesn't add right. anything. It doesn't add anything. And also, I, I never understood that criticism, too, because it's almost as if, you know, right now that we're in a global pandemic and um, we it's probably very useful to have doctors that know a lot about epidemiology and virology uh-huh, and everything. Uh-huh. And you're going to medical school and you're going for, you know, to be a plastic surgeon. Well, that's what I'm interested in. I mean, yeah. we, I don't have to serve the public good at all times yeah. and i always i always it's strange like why are you interested in the subject because i am yeah that's the end of this conversation <laughs> you know and, and, and the thing about this stuff is that free speech and i understand yeah. uh, josh's point uh before of like I, I think i noticed that there was a number of people blue check mark people and this is i said oh that's the other thing they can't stand the people who are defending her i mean this is the the guilt by association thing is that like literally people are screenshotting look james o'keefe and Ben Shapiro said this about her and they, they were supporting her. So they're Tom Cotton yeah. for she's bad. And so many of the people that I know that are kind of on the other side of this think about free speech now and they think about Milo Yiannopoulos. Yeah. And I'm like, no, that's your fault. You're failing. Right. You know, because I mean, how many times do we have to say it over and over and over on this fucking show is that, you know, the <laughs> whole point of this. Yeah. Project of free speech is to defend the bad speech, not That's defend right. the good speech. That's the right. good speech nobody cares yeah, about. Yeah, it's the unpopular speech. It's the unpopular that needs stuff. And, and, you know, I my interest in this is not because I don't like the left or I don't like the right or I don't like anything. Is that, you know, if you can see my apartment right now, Josh Ken, it's covered in Soviet posters and books about the Soviet Union. That has always been an interest of mine since I was a kid. And that was kind of a speech issue in the Soviet Union for a long time. Kind mm-hmm. of. Kind of. A little bit of a th- thing. You know, Samizdat and Solzhenitsyn and people like that. And then all of a sudden, Jordan Peterson is talking about Solzhenitsyn. I'm like, oh, for God's sake. Now, <laughs> now a great writer is going to be tainted by the association with, with Jordan Peterson. But this is the thing is that, you know, why do you care about this should never be the question. Yeah. Are you making sense about it should be the actual question. What, and the answer is fairly mm. clear. Well, Josh, I know we only have so much longer with you, but I, I do want to. Oh, no, that's all right. I can, I can go on. Hang oh, on. Good. Let me make I one see. final point about that. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I, I, I didn't I want to blow, move, blow away, stuff move away from it. No, so, no, that's all right. Yeah. No, no, no. Yeah, I want to stay on this for a second because I think there's an interesting critique to, to us that's worth articulating as well, mm-hmm. which is that. Uh, and I'm, I, I was reading a thread about this by Wajahat Ali. Does that name ring a yeah, bell? Yeah, uh, yeah. An op-ed columnist for the time sometimes. 
He's saying, like, this is a time when journalists are under assault, when Trump is using fascist terms and calling journalists the enemy of the people, and writers who are people of color are finally sharing stories that have long been suppressed of being marginalized. And then the moment we try to assert that voice, we, we're the ones who are accused of playing the race card. And he's saying that there's a kind of a double standard there. My point to that would simply be, have a little intellectual humility about other people's um, perspectives. And I I think that's sort of the secret bit of pixie dust that seems to be missing because I completely agree with his point of view. I understand that we want to bring forward points of view that have been marginalized, but we shouldn't do so in a way that takes, that, that dismisses voices simply because they're mainstream, uses the fact that they're focusing on, illiberalism as a way of dismissing them because they have to be you know part of some power dynamic that uses liberalism as a as a a cudgel or a bludgeon to try to silence people Mm -hmm. and have some i really think just humility about our own our own knowledge i think one thing that you guys have that that is appealing and that i try to draw out of people is like how much do we actually know about how right we are not a lot I don't know a lot about how right I am and I want my work to be, to be able to, to engage with other people in ways that tease out how not right they are too. Yeah. And there's something about this moment that I think underpinning all of these culture war issues is fundamentally a kind of swaggering epistemological arrogance where people just know that they've got the answers and they know that the people who they who are who are wrong are wrong that's right i just want people to take a deep breath and say hang on it's just fucking possible that i don't know what i'm talking about on this particular issue and that the world is better as a big roiling rumbling crazy place where lots of different ideas are all bumping up against each other and you've got to get in the ring and i know it's not equal i know i know some people are standing on a big platform and other people are little minnows and it's not it's not going to be fun so let's try to have have it out as much as we possibly can and give voice to the smallest people as well as the biggest people but at the end of the day not exclude people from the conversation and try to make things pretty and and tied up in a bow and like morally kind of simple because Mm -hmm. you know the way the way you grope towards some solution is to all be in the ring and that's that's what i don't like about this moment it's the sense of certainty it's the sense of I don't know. Yeah. Arrogance. There's a sense in which it feels like folks think they have it all figured out. Like we've reached the end of any kind of it's history. It's a Fukuyamaism so, of like intellectual of, of wokeness. There's also a brilliant anecdote that I have about cancel culture, which happened in Australia last week to a colleague of mine. He presents the afternoon show on ABC Radio Sydney. Uh, and he's... he's Good afternoon, his show- you his show, his also show a great is show. It's a also good a great show. show. Second, second highest rated second show highest in Australia. Show. Yeah. Next to the morning show. That's right. <laughs> His show is basically a comedy show. So it's 12.30 uh, yeah. to 3.30 in the afternoon. I'm actually presenting it next week while he's on holiday. And it's very whimsical. It's very sort of, it's about the curiosities of everyday life. People call in, it's talk back. It's, you know, it's, it's funny. And so he had a, a he wanted to do a, a segment about whether or not chess is racist because white goes first. <laughs> the answer is yes. Okay. And until we so, do something about it, I can't sleep at night, goddammit. Obviously. So, 
So his producer, his producer gets on the phone to oh, no. Australia's greatest retired chess champion <laughs> and pitches this idea uh, as, as like, you know, just a random and people would presumably call in and it would be a silly little thing. Well, turns out Australia's greatest retired chess champion is a right wing Murdoch reading uh, mouth breathing super obsessed with cancel culture and hating on the left-wing public broadcaster as he sees it guy so he puts in a call before the segment's even gone to air to the (laughs) to the murdoch uh tabloid and says you're not going to believe the call that i've just had front page the next day is (laughs) taxpayer abc on crazy anti-racist rampage against chess they they write a big article about it they interview him as people as remote as gary kasparov tweet about it saying i can't believe australia's broadcaster is getting engaged in the ridiculous woke stuff like this yeah he goes on the air and says this is a complete misunderstanding. Obviously, I wasn't taking seriously the idea that chess is uh, is racist. It's been blown out of proportion and misrepresented by the Murdoch press. Uh, but next week on the show, I want to investigate whether Australia's most popular mint, which is called a minty, which is a little white candy. <laughs> it's, it's literally you do? a minty. <laughs> A minty, oh, Australia's favourite candy. He goes, he's, uh, we're going to investigate whether minties are racist because there are no black ones. How is it possible? The next day, <laughs> the next day, I shit you not, the Daily Telegraph front page is about how the ABC is spending taxpayers' money to investigate whether or not <laughs> Australia's no greatest candy <laughs> is racist. Yeah, exactly. It's like... <laughs> this is this goes back to your point, Moynihan, about like you know why so do amazing. why do I focus on this stuff? I focus on it because I want to focus on it. Like yeah. it, he he basically like the ABC has hundreds of radio stations around Australia. Yeah. It has dozens of websites. It has multiple television channels. Do you want and like the line of the Murdoch Press is always, oh, why can't they be focusing on what's really important, like yeah. the coronavirus yeah. and the economy? And you're like, what, do you really on every single show on every single outlet with yeah. every single presenter all the time? There are ch- there are shows on the ABC that teach you how to tell the time because they're children's <laughs> shows. Should they be talking about coronavirus? The answer is yes, obviously. Judge, yeah. <laughs> I, I want to I want to go back. Well, I want to stay on this theme in a, in a sense. This this the non sequiturs that are often drudged up in order to to confront people who do things like say, you know, maybe we should talk about the culture. Um, and the the liberalism that seems to be permeating newsrooms and various other institutions. And I've been in recent days confronted by people who say, I mean, the Uyghurs are being thrown into camps and, har- and their organs are being harvested and Hong Kong is disappearing. And it is also true that at some point in the not too distant future, the planet Earth will probably collide with a massive rock that will wipe out most of the population unless we do something about it. It's possible that we shouldn't talk about anything else <laughs> except for that inevitability. I don't know how good these It'll mics are to pick up. Happening matches again. God, I hope so. <laughs> it's going to happen again. Maybe we should just figure out how to Armageddon the shit out of that rock. But I do think that it's worth having these conversations, even in the midst of that. And Josh, I want to take a run at something and see if you agree. The, mm. the fact that we have a global pandemic and... The government is likely to be growing, as I mentioned earlier, and be in control of ever more aspects of our lives. And combined with that, this interesting and perhaps scary in some respects 
illiberalism that does seem to be permeating the institutions. And at least in the United States, waves of protests that are sometimes punctuated by violence. Um, all of that is happening at once. And for us to have some concern about you know, the condition of our polity and whether or not we actually tolerate differences well anymore, and whether or not the appetite for censorship and for shutting down speech and for thought policing in a climate when we say things like silence is violence, your failure to ally with me on these issues is evidence of your corruption and the fact that you are effectively a party to the worst possible crimes in our society. Like at a moment like that, I worry about a liberalism. I worry about it a lot. And I worry that there is, in fact, a kind of totalitarian potential in a lot of the rhetoric that's being employed with respect to George Floyd and anti-racism. And it's certainly true that people are concerned about this reality on the, on the populist right and the most dark manifestations of it. But I'm concerned about it on the left, too. And I'm concerned about it in a world where there's perhaps a lot of economic desperation and maybe a search for scapegoats that can be punished. Like, tell me that you don't ever have those concerns about kind of the worst possible manifestations of some of these things and whether or not it doesn't sort of rise to the occasion of being the sort of thing that demands our attention right now in a very urgent way. Or am I being hysterical? I don't think you're being hysterical, unfortunately. Um, a buddy of mine is a writer for the Wall Street Journal in Europe, and he used to be their economics editor. And I was visiting him just before the pandemic broke out. And we were talking about Trump and the rise of the far right in Europe and Le Pen in France and Boris in, in the UK. And he was like, you know what? I just, I just think that sometimes I wonder if, if there was, ever, if liberalism was ever actually that popular. Hmm. Like maybe liberals just did, just played a really good game of making some really good arguments a few hundred years ago and managed to kind of wrestle the reins of power for a while. But there's actually, when you really get down to it, the average person, there's no country where the average person is deeply committed to the ideals of liberalism. Hmm. Like, and I do worry about that. So then what you're relying on is the institutions and as Marsha Gessen recently said, I heard her being interviewed somewhere about Trump and the election. You know, you have to realize that democracy is a thing that you do. It's it's a process. It, it's not a state. Democracy isn't a thing. It's not a set of courts and institutions and senates. It's like it's it's a process. And if you're not engaging in the process of democracy, then it withers and dies. Like it needs to be constantly reactivated. And I'd make the same, I mean, I'd expand that from just democracy to like the demos, to broader ideas about us all giving each other a, a fair break and us being committed to giving each other the space to think aloud and make this, make mistakes. I think that, I think we'll get through it. I, I, I don't know what's going to happen in the States. I really think there are so many hard um, pressures on the American system at the moment. We were talking about the comparisons between Australia and America in coronavirus, and I was joking, of course, about the, the debacle in Australia at the moment as they're trying to crack down on the Melbourne outbreak. But even at the moment, Australia's outbreak has it... Uh, uh, today is the, is the worst day ever of the pandemic in any jurisdiction, and we're talking about a little under 300 new cases 
a day, 300 new cases a day. In Florida, which has a smaller population than Australia, it's 15,000 cases a day. That's a big stress to put on people's sense of well-being and it it's a big stress to put on people's anxiety. It's a big stress to put on political institutions. That's compounded by an administration that has no care for, I don't want to talk about norms because I don't really give a shit about norms, but um, just a separation of powers and democratic principles. And you combine that with a legislature that really doesn't seem to want to legislate or to do its job or to be one of the three balances of power. Um, I don't know. I, I'm not. I'm not dejected, Camille, but I'm. Yeah. Uh, I'm alarmed, and sounding a bit dejected. Yeah, you're sounding yeah. dejected. <laughs> yeah, not convincing at all. But I think there's a, a tendency not to not dejected. want to be to to be or sound alarmist, and I definitely don't don't want that. But I also don't want what happened with the pandemic to happen with this because the stakes are huger. They're bigger. Like if it actually goes bad, what's this? I'm sorry. What do you mean? What so is the, this the I'm pandemic and there's the, this, the, the, the degradation. And, and actually Josh, I'll use the word norms, the degradation of norms that is giving rise to this kind of illiberalism that is manifesting itself in different ways on both the left and the right. And the degree to which all of the social unrest that we're having to deal with and the, the, the tensions and difficulties are actually fertile ground for like totalitarian shit to rise up and so become I, I, like so a norm in our society that I, is actually destructive. Bigger than 140,000 deaths. Way bigger. Possible totalitarianism. Way bigger. Well, I, I've right. always been the person. I think you are hysterical. But I, I don't want to be hysterical. But, 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 but the being, possibility but you're is being there. hysterical. No, I mean, I'm, well, I'm, I'm, I, 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 I yeah, would yeah, say yeah. that I'm much more on Camille's side than I've been in the past. I've been the person on the show who said, like, you know, this, you know, comparisons to, 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 comparisons to totalitarian regimes are usually, to say the very least, imprecise. But what. It, scares me about this now when people say why are you focusing on this why do you care about all these little examples of this happening well the little examples of things that are happening are starting to create a rather bigger picture for me and if somebody is mau mowing somebody at work at a university uh so much so that because like you know you saw this um thing on twitter that was incredibly funny and depressing at the same time the woman who wrote that sort of groveling apology to her customers in Seattle because she had dreadlocks and she promised to enter all sorts of rehabilitation clinics and stuff for appropriating black hairstyles. It's true. This was the other yeah. day. There's one of these every day. And when my daughter who's nine years old responds to certain things by saying, you know, you said this about your daughter too, of saying like, well, I think that might be racist. I can look at Good God, really? Where did this come from? Where is this coming from? And this is not to say that. And I think that like when you say that any film that you see, that is five years old, you say, well, you couldn't do that today. That's getting narrower, that time frame of that three years ago, you can't do that today. And I think that the response to that would be, well, that's bad stuff. And we don't want to do that sort of thing. Well, I think that, that I'm when I'm waiting for films to be removed from, you know, streaming services as so many have. And of course, what's it called? Uh, Gone with the wind came back, but it came back with 
historian giving this preamble about how it's inaccurate. I'm like, I know it's a 1939 movie. <laughs> it's not going to be sort of my urtext of, of Civil War history. But as I see this becoming more and more accepted, what is to make us think that if a university can't, you know, that if a university can actually, you know, allow this stuff to happen, to collapse and allow this kind of mad illiberalism to overwhelm its institutions, that that couldn't happen on a bigger scale. If it's happening on a fairly big scale in state universities, right? State-run, state-funded universities, the stuff that you see is like, oh, God, that's got to be a joke, right? That's got to be a joke. It's not. And I worry about that, you know, infecting other parts of the culture because it has. I mean, exactly. That, that, that Michael, is exactly what, uh, well, you know, the, one of the points that Barry and also that John Hyatt uh, make is that they've been you know everyone's been saying oh this is insignificant campus stuff you shouldn't be worrying so much about all this crazy stuff on campus people grow up and the concern has been sure they grow up but they might grow up and continue to hold on to their beliefs <laughs> right. about uh, yeah. about these things and then go on to run the institutions this is this is my main concern like when you say am i worried about getting cancelled i have the good fortune to work for an organization that has a lot of um uh, momentum, a lot of kind of gravitas and a lot of institutional momentum behind it where it's not going to jump overboard and just fire people because the mob is coming for it. But that's because it's run by people who grew up in another era. In 30 years, it might be run by a very different cohort of people More and five. it might be a very different institution. Yeah. And that's the, that is, I think, the real fear that our not that we, I'm less concerned, Camille, that we become a totalitarian dictatorship and more concerned that we become a semi-democracy where the constraints, where the thought policing is intense enough that you, it doesn't ever actually need to be acted on. So it's not that people are getting fired all over mm -hmm. the place. Mm -hmm. It's that they're living in a kind of Erdogan-style or Orban-style state or Putin-style sure. state where you know what you're supposed to say and you know <laughs> how you're supposed to behave. Or, or you and actually don't. daily life is... Yeah, yeah. Part part of it is actually daily not life knowing, is kind right? of fine. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And 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 so, but let me let me just say say something more optimistic, which is that there is a possibility that this crisis reinvigorates liberalism as well, and mm -hmm. leaves a lot of people saying, "I want neither of you." A pox on both your houses. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't want to have to be choosing in this way. Uh, and I think that's equally likely. And when, uh, Michael, when you say, like, uh, that you're concerned about all of this sort of identity politics stuff, my, I should make clear, my main concern about all this stuff is only because I fear that it's going to provoke a right-wing response and undermine the left. Hmm. I mean, I am principally committed to a vision of the... I think that, that the social welfare, the social democratic state that... We, we established in the 20th century as one of the great humanizing innovations of all time. I, I'm a committed capitalist when it comes to economics, but a committed lefty when it comes to to living in a place where nobody's falling through the cracks and, and but, dying or going but bankrupt. But you don't have to worry about that in some sort of far off kind of, you know, let's let's game this out way. All you have to do is look at Europe. And when you look at Europe and you see the the success of far right parties and keeping in mind that these are not Republicans. These are not, you know, conservatives in the Canadian sense of the word either. These are people, you know, for, in, for instance, in Sweden, I mean, you have roughly 18, 19, 20 percent, depending on, on the day, 
that the Sweden Democrats are polling. When I left Sweden, it was like probably around 1%, 2%. And this is a party that was founded by neo-Nazis. And it evolved, shall we say. But trust me, when neo-Nazis want to vote for somebody, they have a party now. And that is because, and I think this is a direct line here, there's actually an incredibly good piece about this. I don't think it was uh, it was ever translated, but uh, by uh, what's his name, the Norwegian the Norwegian novelist uh, Knausgård. So Knausgård, who lives in Sweden, wrote this thing about the the uh, the Svens Cyclops, the the Cyclops of Sweden. It's like you can't talk about this stuff, and everyone knows it. And so this like kind of alternative media started happening in Sweden in a kind of Breitbart way. It's a web stuff only, and all of a sudden these parties were doing really, really well and nobody anticipated it because there was literally no conversation about, for instance, the refugee crisis. Um, this is, uh, Sweden's very sort of left of center country. Even the conservatives are, as I always point out, called the moderates. That's literally the name of the conservative party in Sweden is called the moderates. <laughs> and so this was, they would not criticize this stuff. And it, it opened up this space because nobody felt like they could talk about it. And they said, oh my God. And I talked to, I went and shot a piece for HBO in there. Everybody was telling me the same thing, like, oh, yeah, but like these are the only guys that actually have the stones to talk about this issue that we care about, which is the fact that, you know, five years ago we were Sweden and now we're Sweden, but we're different. And we have all these refugees and this violence and blah, blah, blah. Whether or not any of that stuff is true or they're overdrawing it is irrelevant because that happened across Europe. Right. And so I see a very similar thing happening in the U.S. now where it's like, yeah, there's guys like. Jonathan Chait, <laughs> Matt Iglesias. I like, I like more and more. Like more and more. Yeah. These are guys saying, hey, we're liberals and we should be defending these things. But there are fewer and fewer of those people. And the, those types of liberals, I feel, are becoming slightly reactionary too. And I've sure. talked to a number of people that, that do believe that, they look, what is going to happen in November when Donald Trump loses? He's going to lose. And, you know, I will eat my words I, and I will eat my hat and I will be very depressed if he wins, but he's going, he's going to lose. You don't have that anymore to go up against. When you say that this country is, is, you know, irredeemable and it's so racist. In fact, that it gave the presidency to this man, he's going to disappear. And black lives matter now has like a 60, 70% approval rating. <laughs> what happens now? What happens? If you don't have that person, you know, as your kind of opposition, because I think Donald Trump created a lot of this stuff. I mean, the, 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 the goose it for sure. Animated, goose it yeah, for sure. Yeah. The harshness of the response mm -hmm. um, is definitely would 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 definitely not have happened uh, if it weren't for Donald Trump. I I, I cannot imagine it's, it migrating. I think so you're absolutely right, and I think I, I think that's why it becomes a self fulfilling prophecy and a vicious cycle because because intolerance begets intolerance on both sides, and mm. the, and so the the glimmer of hope, Camille, to, just coming back to your your pessimism and and my dejectedness in just gradually trailing <laughs> off into a swamp of self pity earlier. Uh -huh. <laughs> now I can reinvigorate that and and say like you know what there is actually a glimmer of hope here, which is which is that. Look, without Obama, you probably didn't get Trump. Without Bush and the war in Iraq, you probably didn't get Obama. Uh, everything is cyclical. We're in some kind of like Hegelian thing where we're swinging back and <laughs> forth and, and something to do with social media and the way that we're all engaging with each other at the moment and the speed and pace makes that swinging more and more wild. And either it's all going to spin off the rails and I think we'll end up in a civil war perhaps mm -hmm. or 
we will restrain it back. We will pull it back together, partly through maybe technological tweaks and turning away, turning our phones off for one second, and partly through finding a new way of thinking about how quickly we should be responding to things and how much how much um, space we should be giving to each other. And we might be reaching a tipping point in the sense that we're all getting fed up with treading on eggshells so much. We're all getting fed up with the kabuki dance, hmm. and there has to come a point at which a critical mass of people go, you know what, this is a game I don't want to ha- I don't want to play anymore. I'm out. I, I- I hope I hope you're right, and also Hegelian is one possibility. But since I'm under the sway of Peter Thiel and his acolytes, <laughs> as they give me oh, money and it bought me off, <laughs> I, I, I should say Gerardian scapegoating. Oh, uh, go look that up, people. Um, don't look Josh, it up unless no, you no, 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 no. really, really no, no. like. Really look it up. Seriously, no, don't. It makes a lot okay. more sense to me now. This is uh, when he asked Jack about Josh about Nick Cannon. Thank God. Can I get the check now, Peter? <laughs> Peter, you have to check for me. Um, Gerard is a fucking nut sandwich. Still listen to Matt Welch. Matt Welch, listen. Camille has been here for you. Camille has been here for you, calling this out, telling you what was going to happen, telling you what was what with respect to identitarianism and the degree to which it looks a hell of a lot like that bullshit that you're seeing from the alt-right, that anti-racism is, in fact, the same gross... It's distillation great. Of My all parents always like, said trust Camille the guy who refers to himself here. in the third person. He's been right. <laughs> I like it's true. Him. You have been I right. like Camille. I don't, don't like philosophers who base themselves on 1930s Germans <laughs> who know. chose Hitler. I know. That's just like, I don't know. It's just, I know. I, it's my I know. small thing. Yeah, small thing. Yeah. Listen, Hitler was wrong. You're not going to get wow. any Hitler defenses wow. from me. Wow. I know you, I, I've seen a lot statement. of other things I recently. Felt, I felt um, a lot of effort there. Josh, Speaking of can which, I ask you a question? <laughs> yes, How you much may. time do you have? Can we talk a little bit about the, yes, the go on. anti-Semitism well, go stuff? It. Okay. A, we've got yep. 20 minutes over time. All right, go on. Hey. One final thing. One final thing I want to get into Important. here. Don't Nick French could buy the motherfucker. The man who gave us, who brought us Drumline who does that fucking show on MTV where he like raps or something. I don't know. I've never watched You've it. Never it seems heard of terrible. I know Nick Cannon. No, no, no. I grew up with Nick Cannon. All right. Like I remember when he did Gigolo with R. Kelly. I'm a gigolo spinning lots of dough. Can you see the way my wide body moving on foes? Like, that's a pretty racist impression, Camille. You're yeah, basically that's, that's, right. <laughs> that's just R. Kelly. I, yeah. At least I'm not talking about like young girls getting yeah, touched. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Pimp bones in my body rock them like Lottie Dottie. I don't know why I remember that. Now, those are Nick Cannon lyrics, but apparently Nick Cannon also doesn't really like the Jews. He does those uh, exact same songs in German. <laughs> also, just doesn't before we really move on, like, though, can I also just tell the yeah. listener because I can see you via Skype that when Camille was doing those songs, <laughs> he was doing the kind of dance that white people do when they try yes. to dance like black That's people. Right. Yeah, right. yep, yep. That's right. It's kind of the robot, True. but yeah. like you know, it's popping and locking. You know what? People can't see it. Yeah. So whatever you say is a lie, Josh Seps. I was yeah. doing the most hip dance yeah. imaginable. It was exactly. very on brand, very yeah. Camille Foster, exactly what you would expect. Wow. Um, but Nick Cannon uh, apparently had a, a has a, a thing called Cannon's Classroom, where he dresses up in a Howard University sweatshirt, and there's a, yeah, yeah. you know this great Puts opening credit scene. And he gets together with interesting people, <laughs> like Professor Griff. Yes. Professor Griff, yes. who was, and I think Moynihan should give the history of Professor Griff, Professor who Griff was excommunicated is, from public enemy is, for being a what? Yeah, anti-Semite. Yeah, yeah, he is tenured, uh, is a tenured professor <laughs> at the University of Jew Hatred. Um, and he was kicked out of public enemy in 1989 for um, uh, a very anti-Semitic outburst at uh, some uh, journalist, which he explains in this interview with uh with nick cannon 
And Very sympathetic his, interview. His, yes. His explanation of it is more anti-Semitic than his original comments. And he was like, he's like the journalist's Jew girlfriend came in. And I was like, wait, did you listen to this? You didn't, I thought you heard this. It's so bananas. But as I said to you today, Nick Cannon doesn't, you know, he doesn't have to say anything. The very act of inviting Professor Griff to sit down with you is an act of anti-Semitism. I'm sorry, but that is true. And you said that uh, that Barry Weiss uh, was trending and got kicked off by this. I think it's pretty funny that the woman who wrote a book uh, about anti-Semitism was kicked off of the trending thing by right. an anti-Semite. Against anti-Semitism, yeah, against we should anti-Semitism, say. Because not, it's yes. not obvious these days it's not obvious when someone is days. talking about anti-Semitism yes. and a cancellation related yes, to anti-Semitism. And, and, and to be clear, this is not like you know i I oppose the settlements and the occupation right this is not that this is the jews control the banks rothschilds the whole nine yards yeah i i know josh you you haven't seen this thing but in in Dear listeners, maybe you haven't either. I would recommend to you that you go watch the entire hour and a half long. It's so thing. crazy. Oh. Um, there's a sense in which it's really, really sense, yeah, yeah, watch yeah, it. So I good. Do I have to do that? It's extraordinary. It's extraordinary. It is, and also it'll give you a peek into my life because having visited a number of African American barbershops in my time, spent a lot of times. I'm the kind of guy who kind of wants to talk to the dude who's selling like the, the NOI the, paper, the, the NOI stuff, the the self published book. The incense and the, the final leg, call, the yeah. bootleg yeah. colognes and yeah, these little yeah, vials. Yeah. He always yeah. has interesting things to say. <laughs> yeah. And those interesting things sound exactly like what Nick Cannon said. And while the scandal here is supposedly that Nick Cannon is an anti-Semite, which he is, it sounds like. It's not supposedly. Right? He's like the Jews control everything. It's and we should also get rid of the them. case that Nick <laughs> Cannon said some other things that are pretty inflammatory. Oh, At yeah. least I think they ought to be beyond the pale. Nick Cannon suggested in standard NOI fashion, Nation of Islam, that the black man is God and that white people are devils. And of course, he (laughs) defended assertions that the white man is a devil, saying that, you know, when the minister says that the white man is a devil, he's not being racist. There's some sort of ridiculous rationalization for that. But he did also go on to say that melanin, Mm -hmm. the thing in your skin that makes it brown, that melanated people's. That's have a says, soul melanated people and yeah. the melanin is what gives you your soul mm-hmm. and that white people yes the, those who do not have melanin who were created in a laboratory by a mad scientist yakub these people <laughs> Dr. These white people don't have souls because they don't have melanin so they can only steal and destroy and it's yes. the reason they lack compassion because they have no souls which means and he says and I want to be delicate about this. Yes. I want to be careful that, when I, I say this. this. That, and by the way, when the somebody says that, they're not going to be careful. The yeah. white man yeah. is essentially almost an animal. Yes. They are less human. That's what Because they have no souls. It sounds like I'm making this shit up. <laughs> it it does like sound like I'm you're making it up. fucking absurd. It's not. It's not made you're up underplaying it the shit is (laughs) real it's real and it's not new and i've heard it all before yeah that's why i said uh, hang on as far as i'm concerned and i might be the whitest person in this conversation but i didn't know who it's hard man it's hard Uh, i mean yeah they also hate gays (laughs) there's a whole anti-gay riff there was a whole anti-gay thing please go ahead wow so 
Yeah. I'm incredibly white. I'm a white gay Jew. I'm really coming up the, uh, the Nick Cannon hierarchy. Yeah. I but think this piece might have been a saying, actually. <laughs> <laughs> Was there anything about Australia in it? Yeah. No. Yeah. No, but only because but they, had, I, they ran out of time. Tasmanian devil. But I hear but, but this is this this strikes me as possibly one of those things where like where there is some justification in saying, well, why are we focusing on this? Because isn't this just a crazy man ranting? Like you could talk, you could talk to a you could well, pick something host, out of a science. I think, I think when this just as a take an American too. kind of cultural uh, perspective here is that I think why this became such a big story is that he is kind of widely beloved. He was a he was a child star. He's the host and, of like America's Got he's, Talent. He's the host of like you know the hidden, wilding 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 out wilding in like the, what, what is it like the mystery singer that they wear like a oh, giraffe head or something? Singer, the right? Was he hosting the that? Singer? He's yeah, show he's hosting seen. one oh, of these. Suddenly, things. Josh yeah. wakes up. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Singer. And he, right? <laughs> and he was essentially fired. No, by that's only because my friend hosts the Australian version. The Australian version. Everyone is Peter Garrett. <laughs> Every time, Carlin Minogue. Is it, no, it's Danny Minogue. Right? It's Peter. Sure, it's tall. It's Peter Garrett. There he is again. Um, every fucking week. Um, but the thing about it is that is that there were a lot of people, including Dwayne Wade, and including um, uh, P Diddy. P Diddy. P Diddy said, "Come home. Yeah, come come home. home to Revolt, where we give black people their own shows, and we won't cancel you." Now, Dwayne Wade. Mm-hmm. Deleted, deleted the tweet. He deleted his tweet yeah. and then put yeah. up another tweet saying, "Hey, you know, I just want to be very clear. I was supporting my brother, yeah. but I am not yeah. a motherfucking racist." Yeah, I believe Dwayne Wade is not a racist, but I will say this: that there are lots of people who have tweeted and retweeted oh, Nick yeah. and tweeted messages of support for him. And as I've said before in the past, if I ever thought that awful the grossest manifestations of like identitarianism on in within the black community. If I thought that that sort of thing had as wide a purchase in the white community as it has in the black community, I would actually be kind of terrified (laughs) because, because years ago, like Farrakhan was able to get 10, 15,000 people oh, into an arena to pay attention to He spoke to at him. my university and he I went and saw He has a tremendous amount of influence yeah. within like the pop culture, hip hop community. The, the women's march chicks, mm-hmm. we remember like it was the fruit of Islam that were like running security. This is not like, I'm not being conspiracy, conspiracy. I'm not being conspiratorial here. Mm-hmm. This isn't conspiracy theory bullshit. The guy is just like popular. And mm-hmm. also just also to address uh, Josh's kind of uh, incredulity about this is that incredulity, this, but that's fine. whatever yeah, oh, fine. you're going to bust my balls about yeah. like pronunciation. I can't uh, because I'm black. Is that what you're saying? Pretty much. White man? Uh, <laughs> but like, I, this, almost, I almost corrected you on something earlier, but I didn't do this. It com- this comes you can't. In, in a context when there's <laughs> white devil, especially in the sports world, but elsewhere, there's a lot of other, um, both statements uh, uh-huh. by various athletes and recently. commentators recently, mm-hmm. and also criticism thereof. Um, uh, uh, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar had a very strong piece, I think, in the Hollywood and Reporter. And Ice Cube responded with an anti-Semitic tweet. <laughs> literally, <laughs> with an anti-Semitic, literally with an anti-Semitic tweet. And I just want to like, like a judgment call. Shout like, out to is Kareem. It, is, it, is it anti-Semitic? I thought it was a Judas thing. 30 pieces of silver? Yeah, but that's Judas selling out Jesus. Is that anti-Semitic? Or yes, is it I is. mean, it's kind of Christian. Yep. Go, go, there's, a, there's a good history of this. Josh, can we, you weigh in on this? Because you're the expert. I didn't even understand. I read that quote, and I didn't even, I'm so, I'm such a heathen, I didn't even get the <laughs> yeah. reference. Yeah. yeah. 
What a disgusting uh, that human. It's really sad, yeah. Josh. Yeah. Well, he's I thought that it was the case of Ed Gay. But hang on, See, let me run this by you. Worst, let me run this yeah. by yeah. you. There is a narrative that we now are supposed to swallow that it is impossible to be racist if you're not white. Well, that's right? a, this that's is a widespread narrative, yeah. right? This yeah. is an old this is an old long-standing power, thing yes. which is becoming yeah. Which has become mainstream. Totally mainstream. Now. It has become that, mainstream. Totally yeah. mainstream. And actually evolved I don't know if a little you saw bit. That, I don't know if you saw that amazing viral video a few weeks ago of that like young white girl who was screaming at this bunch of cops, There's I think so in DC. Yeah. And she was insisting that the black cop the black cops she was accusing the white cop of being racist. And when the black cops came to the defense of their colleague, she they were like the black guy was like, You 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 saying I can't be racist? Yeah. You saying I can't be racist? And she's like, No, sir, no, sir. You you can't be racist. You can't be racist systemically because I just took a fucking class and I learned about racial gender studies and race theory. And that like, is come a hysterical on, white American girl accent. <laughs> Oh I want God. you to. I want you to voice all fights that take place for us, Josh. We'll hey, just uh, play can, that audio. Camille, can you do me a favor? Can you give me a time code on that? Because I'm going to send it to the Murdoch Press uh, tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> so Blair. anyway, I feel like we have been so encouraged to believe this fiction that it's impossible that racism is purely the domain of the white person. Mm-hmm. That in some ways, this new clip is kind of. It's sort of too easy. It's like if you're talking about how melanin gives you a soul, then mm-hmm. you're so off the reservation that I think like it's, it almost gives a pass to the to the sort of the flaws of mm. extreme mm. race race theory as it's being propagated by the sort of uh, divisionist uh, mm. um, identity politics folks. Because it's it's like we can all team up and call this stupid but that's just but it's a bit of a distraction from the from the deeper stupidity that also permeates a lot of conversations around race isn't it i don't know because there are two problems one is that for the most part this has been condemned as being anti-semitic when in fact like it's rapidly racist and it's explicitly anti-white as well like just broadly um and i have seen very little conversation about Mm. that there's also like a very meaningful parallel. There's a sense in which the like NOI five percenter version of history in which whiteness is this immutable characteristic that that sullies people in a fundamental and, and uh, incontrovertible way that they will forever be trying to atone for their awfulness and they're congenitally guilty and congenitally evil. I mean, if that sounds a lot like Robin D'Angelo, Ibram Kendi white fragility, how to be anti-racist stuff. That's because it's the same shit. Like whiteness is an essential characteristic. White people and black people can't really have like honest and sincere relationships where they actually understand one another because white people are fundamentally racist and everything that they do deliberate or otherwise is fundamentally a racist act. And that's the other thing about racism being something that black people can't actually perform. It's not merely a function of power it's actually that they've been working on the definition for some time. And now it is not just what you do. It is the fact that these institutions exist at all and that some of them in some way, shape or form can date back to an age of slavery. And in a way, you can trace every institution back to slavery, even police, the police. The fact that we have cops at all doesn't matter that everyone has had cops and that there were cops in ancient Rome who did kind of patrols and shit. Well, it's all related to the slave patrols. In, in the United States, um, it's just 
it's insane. And there's actually a parallel there that is deeply uncomfortable and disconcerting. And I don't know, it, it, it kind of gives it a pass, but for the most part, people seem to be ignoring that most obscene stuff. And I can't say that the reason they're ignoring it is because it seems so much like the anti-racist claptrap that is becoming so prominent, but it is like very much like it. It is the same kind of poison. It's also the thing that you wonder what effect this has. I mean, because this is somebody, to keep in mind, who's very popular. I mean, was married yeah. to Mariah Carey. Yeah. And, uh, you know, is on one of the bigger shows on network television. Um, and I saw a lot of pushback um, that had thousands of likes and, and retweets of saying, like, oh, this is, can by the way, this is not cancel culture. It is not cancel culture when somebody actually does something. And that could affect the bottom line of your company. And it sounded That's, like Viacom kind of wanted to keep him. Viacom the, said that he he refused to apologize yes, yes. for his anti-Semitic anti remarks. Yes. And which, is, which is true. He which, doesn't apologize. Which, by the way... He says, I'm not racist. Yeah. But I told the truth. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, good on him for, for, <laughs> for being consistent, I guess. Well, wait a second. Let me just push back on the idea that this isn't cancel culture. Isn't it cancel culture to want him fired? I didn't. I didn't call for him to be no, fired. No, well, I don't. So I maybe think that, some people did. So I think that, like, well, well, think of a difference here. Is that Louis C.K. Um, asked women if he could masturbate in front of him and did, and the charge against him beyond just being gross was something about a power dynamic because he was more successful than these women were. He asked them to come to his hotel room, etc. Um, what happened as a result of that was that HBO, for instance, took all of Louis's specials and his old show Lucky Louis, etc., off of their platform. You can no longer see it on the platform. This happened to, uh, with other people too. Um, I don't like that. And I don't like that with Nick Cannon either. And that's not going to happen. There's no suggestion that's going to happen. Everything that Nick Cannon has done, I don't think should be taken off of Amazon or taken off of, you know, Apple plus or whatever these platforms are now. There's no suggestion of that, but I would say that that is getting towards a type of cancel culture. But the idea I think of cancel culture is that, is that the fundamental thing is that people didn't do anything really wrong or didn't say anything that was really hideous or nasty or do something that's illegal or, or, or not, even deliberate or deliberate. I mean, this is obviously not something that's illegal, but there's a number I think of overlapping factors. And I don't think the guy should be fired as such. I mean, I have no interest either way, but I don't, I would never expect anybody who cares about this stuff, the sort of cancellation stuff to come to the defense of somebody who was, you know, saying, you know, black people are genetically inferior. And by the way, I work for this show on ABC. I don't think any of the regular cancer culture people are going to be like, oh, yeah, we really have to defend this guy. They would say, no, that's that's actually out of bounds. There's been There's a stuff lot of, you can be fired for. There's been a lot of uh, like uh, online uh, uh, discourse debates about what might define cancel culture. And one of them um, uh, that a few people have come up with uh, strikes me as kind of true is if you are actively calling for the firing of somebody like in a super active way um, or saying something that is within the kind of uh, boundaries of what is, has been until very recently and maybe is now in normal discourse or like was something like, you know, the Boeing guy who was fired for something, you know, ostensibly for something that he wrote in 1987 saying yes. that women shouldn't be in the military. Right. Like, that was totally within normal discourse in 1987. And he doesn't actually believe any of that now. I don't actually believe that's why he was fired. I think it was like an easy 
reason. But to, isn't it scary that they'd use that as a as a like justifiable excuse when they're fired that, for something that else? That still <laughs> chills and restricts the boundaries of free speech when you're using it as a bullshit justification. But so um, it's when you're doing that. So I mean, a lot of people like try to be clever and say, "Yeah, well, you know." cancel culture which is a phrase i try not to use i don't, I don't, I don't like, like, like it, it. Uh, but like but like what it. what happens if there's a nazi um and the answer is that almost never happens but it but it has mm. i mean it has in my life i i collaborated with a nazi you did I'm sorry what? yep guy, a guy named john elliott who is the head what did you help him do matt welch I, oh shit! That guy. Jews, obviously. <laughs> yeah. I mean, they, I mean, they had a little so, Holocaust conference. <laughs> I mean, why are you? It's just open inquiry. That's right. So he was at the Institute <laughs> the for Humane Studies for a long time, mm-hmm. and he would, which is a, a Coke-funded, I think George Mason University. Jeez, oh, you're just dragging everybody into this. Yep. Okay. Especially you. Uh, me? Uh, yeah. <laughs> when was this? Uh-huh. Um, uh, and so he was part of like this sort of journalism networking thing. And he uh, called me in and actually this oh, like yeah. um, uh, to give a seminar to young journalists, uh, including in this case, uh, Molly uh, Hemingway. So I'm responsible oh, through yeah. a Nazi. to help molly hemingway uh no this is all like uh uh, supposition but there was a a a great piece and i'm gonna mangle who broke it but it was last year buzzfeed um, or something wasn't it? well i think it's probably buzzfeed yeah um that got hold he organized this this group of about 30 people some kind of list serve where they were like talking about they had all these code code words for Hitler and for black people and for this and for that and the, and the Jewish question and all. Yeah, 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 yeah. But the funny thing about that, I remembered and I love the code words that like are broad enough that people understand them in a listserv, but they think that other people won't. It's always like the mafia thing when they're caught on like tape saying, I'm going to deliver a couple of bags of cement to the river. And they're like, oh, they're throwing a body in the river. Yeah. No, it's like, I mean, this one was like, we, uh, the German guy with the push broom mustache, who's kind of like excitable. I'm like, wait, just say Hitler. We know what you're so talking about. when John Elliott, his name is, um, was outed in this good piece of journalism, yeah. what happened with everyone who had been doing business with him at all? They're like, oh, go fuck off. Oh, yeah, 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 sure. That's it. And yeah. like in, he was issuing abject apologies and I was going through a tough time in my life, whatever. Like when you have the Nazi problem, <laughs> every time people, I break up with a girlfriend, I'm like, I lower the number from six million to four. No, I mean, she, it's, it's like who the fuck? No, I, I mean, like he was a hard time in life and I became a like, Nazi. Seriously Jeez. referring to Hitler as like the good guy or whatever. It was oh terrible. God. Um, like trying to recruit really people in like DC, but like, so when you're that far outside of the Overton window or whatever your window of discourse is, it's actually not that hard. But even then, um, Josh, to address your question, I don't give a shit. This guy has a job. Actually, Zach Weiss uh, Mueller from reason had, I thought a pretty interesting idea uh, on the Twitter machine, which is like, Hey, I'm not calling for him to be fired, but wouldn't it be interesting if the response to this, knowing that it, couldn't happen because of corporate reasons, but like give him an hour special, like where his insane fucking racist and anti-Semitic ideas had to be give a hearing, like let people Mm. come to Jesus with this stuff because it's crazy. And as Camille points out, it happens. It has happened. And as Kareem Abdul-Jabbar has pointed out, like this is sort of like bubbling underneath places 
that are not given that kind of like airing out, that would be a much more the, useful there, exercise. And I've seen people recently, and I saw something, you look this up on Twitter, I don't remember who said it, but it was somebody um, with some somewhat of a following um, attacking this idea that sunlight is the best disinfectant. Oh, yeah, so, well, bleach. No, bleaches, you know, et cetera. Probably. Okay. I'm guessing it's an ex-Gawker writer. Uh, probably, just, I, yeah, you know, probably. I would say strange this, strange hunch. If you want, if I mean, these people are just kind of sitting on Twitter and talking about somebody who tweeted something and not thinking about. I can see right here, actually, behind me, that book right there. You see that um, uh, history on trial is a book uh, by Deborah Lipstadt. Uh, it's it, like pointing to one of five well, trillion books. Well, on this. Yeah. history on trial. Uh, the great example of this was David Irving, and people think that David Irving, the Holocaust denying historian, who most mainstream historians of German history um, have said in the past that he was actually quite useful in digging up documents because he was a Nazi and Nazis trusted him, I suppose. But when he, he actually was the one who sued, he sued Deborah Lipset for calling him a Holocaust denier. And what happened? He went in front of a judge and this was a long two books about it. One is uh, Deborah Lipset. The other one is a guy uh, from the nation magazine who wrote a very, very, very good book about this. Um, and what happened? Jan van Pelt, Richard Evans, Deborah Lipstadt, et cetera, came and they actually had a trial about history. And History on Trial is a good name of it because they actually went over what happened in the Holocaust in a trial for, and David Irving was brutalized every day. He never recovered. He had, he used to have some sort of like entry point into the mainstream. So when the fake Hitler diaries uh, were bought by the London Times, by a Murdoch paper, he was brought in at one point to authenticate them, right? So he was considered somebody who was a bit distasteful, but he knew the subject. He, like, he had good uh, uh, sources. There's a lot of uh, fascists and, and original Nazis, OG Nazis that were still alive at the time. <laughs> they put it on trial, and guess what? It just collapsed because something like that cannot withstand scrutiny. So I, I I agree with Zach's idea because I think that that's yeah I mean I, now 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 I just want to have him on my podcast yeah get him <laughs> on talk to him about David it. Irving uh, a great podcaster <laughs> yes uncomfortable conversation <laughs> no this no so this racist this racist guy I think you're missing something about uh, cancel culture uh, Sarah Please. Hader uh, wrote tweeted define canceling as precisely and completely as possible and my response to her was I see three necessary conditions a the person suffers serious reputational or professional harm. B, it's due to alleged character flaws, usually bigotry. C, those flaws have been revealed in words or act actions exaggerated, misrepresented, or cherry-picked to achieve A, which is the person suffers serious reputational mm. or professional harm. I think the missing component good, for me... Thank yeah, and you. The, the punishment it, being wildly disproportionate. Uh, yeah, yeah, yes, that's right. Um, but I think for me, it's the rift between what the person actually did or believes and the interpretation that is missing from the conversation about this. Because so often what we really find egregious about cancel culture is that a person has used a wrong phrase, they've used a wrong turn of phrase, they've, they've shared something that they shouldn't have, there was something out of context. Honestly, In other words, during if you actually sat them down and you spoke to them for an hour, mm -hmm. then they would not come across, they would not be revealed to be the person who is worthy of the, the punishment. Right. And something that might be a bit different in this case is if, if this guy, Nick, has a genuine, sincerely held belief that endures over time that Jews are evil and that white people are, don't have souls, 
that could be grounds for for getting for not wanting him to host a show. Yeah, but it would have to be revealed as being something that's a that's a genuine commitment on his part, well, rather than something that he accidentally mistweeted. Yeah, if, I mean, if you're giving an opportunity to apologize in order to save your job, even a little bit, and but you I don't say even like I'm not going to do like it, I'm going to apologize. Stay by the I'm not truth. a fan of forcing people to apologize. Yeah, yeah. that feels I'm, Stalinist to me. I'm, I don't like that either. He no, doesn't I'm, have to apologize. I'm actually, for it. I'm a, I just I would want to sort of agree. ask him. But I, yeah, I mean, like, I'm what just saying, like, if you're given a chance to apologize and you say, I don't have anything to apologize for, I just told the truth, having just said that melanated people have souls and white people are just a, a little lower people. than us as a species. <laughs> and, you know, it, it's only a matter of time before the original man, the black man, who is, in fact, God, wins. Um, I don't know. Like, if you double down on that, that's pretty bad. Look, put it this way. If the price I have to pay to get rid of cancel culture is that he keeps a job, I'm yeah. paying it. That's fine. <laughs> well, in one one final thing on this, and this is actually from uh, Reason. I don't know who wrote this at Reason, and I just looked the piece up because we're we're in this point, and I pointed out uh, on a Patreon, uh, go subscribe, a Patreon <laughs> episode that uh, a book from 1994 when political correctness was a kind of big thing on college campuses and there was a book called The Myth of Political Correctness. It just didn't exist, right? right and of right. course, we found out later that obviously it, it, it did exist, regardless of what you call it. That yeah. instinct we know was, was a real thing. And so now, of course, the response is to say cancel culture is not a real thing. It's not. Okay, fine. So what are the examples? There are people just actually being put in their place who deserve to be put in their place. And what you don't like, white man, is that you're losing power. Yeah. And now the other people are, 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 are displacing you. And you are whining about it. Let me give an example that Reason pointed out today. This is uh, the SF MoMA, the MoMA Museum in San Francisco, which... Robbie Suave's piece. Uh, yes, is Robbie's piece. And um, this is in the San Francisco Chronicle. The uh, Gary Garrels was forced to resign. I can't say that he resigned uh, of his own accord because he gave a talk to people at the museum. And at the end of a speech, he was talking about how they would... You know, as a result of this big movement, everyone has to talk about, you know, what they're going to do for diversity and equality and equity, et cetera. He said, we'll be, you know, getting more artists of color, et cetera, into the museum collection. <laughs> he finished it off by saying, don't worry, we'll definitely still continue to collect white artists. Um, it seems like a tongue was in cheek. Uh, Garrels reportedly stated that no longer collecting white artists reportedly stated that this is apparently a contentious thing um, or a contended thing reportedly stated that no longer collecting white artists would be a form of quote reverse discrimination then what happens a group of former employees started a petition former employees uh started a petition demanding Garrels resign i think he'd been there for 20 odd years wow um or be removed from his position with the petitioners alleging that the terms quote reverse discrimination and reverse racism are quote white supremacist and racist language yeah, yeah. and he Sorry. is now doesn't have a job yeah so if you don't think cancel culture exists i don't know what you call that mm -hmm. but that's the thing i don't like yeah. And, and it, it seems that there is, it's odd because in some cases people say there is no cancel culture. And then in other instances they say, and maybe this is the same argument, perhaps it is that, well, it's not cancel culture. You're just upset that you're losing power and control. Your status is in jeopardy. And these long disenfranchised people are now, they now have the reins and yeah, we're going to punish certain people and we'll punish them pretty hard for 
transgressing boundaries that they may not even be aware of because we've suffered long enough. That's not how they say it, is it? I mean, that's not how they say it. They say, you're just complaining because the shoe's on the other foot and you've always, you've always suppressed ideas that you didn't like. It's just that those ideas were coming from black and brown people and trans people. And now you're just realizing what it's like to have your ideas being dismissed Mm -hmm. and, uh, and sidelined as a result of them not being popular. And my response to that would be sideline my ideas all you want. Just don't try to take out of context what I'm saying and use that as a pretext for a disproportionate punishment. Because yeah. if that ever happened to the extent that that happened to black, brown, trans people, anyone, I will always oppose it anywhere mm-hmm. and everywhere. And I was never a fan of straight white males trying to get people fired for being trans that was never that has never been my position and i hold no responsibility for the fact that that had happened in the past and that there were white horrible bigots and was there was there a a, a number of journalists mm-hmm. at that time that were supporting the firing of trans people mm-hmm. because that's what we have now is a number of journalists signing letters etc oh, yeah uh, that were saying i don't know i don't yeah, know maybe. this i i didn't i don't know that this was the case um, or that this was a a problem in the past. I suspect if someone says tells me that that was the case, fine, great. But I the, the fact that so many people mm-hmm. are actually supporting this and wielding this to dislodge people from power. Yeah, it's not only that the the reins have been handed over. These are people like, for instance, the San Francisco MoMA thing. These are former employees. Yeah, that have gotten together. And why are former employees? Not your current employees, people you've been there for 20 years. I'm sure there's a lot of people who work with you who trust you and know that you're not a racist and you're just a guy who maybe said something. I don't even think that's a the weird thing to say, but maybe phrase something along it landed in the wrong way. But I mean, it, there's no coming back from it. There's no. But this is where the censorship no comes in. That happens as well, though, frequently. right? Because frequently. You, you're not allowed to dispute the charge. You can't dispute the allegation. To dispute the allegation in most of these contexts is proof of your guilt or evidence of yeah. you not not sufficiently conforming to the new standard because part of the argument is that now that we've established that there's a new definition for racism or a, the, the more perfect definition of racism, which is essentially that this person gets to determine whether or not you're being bigoted and racist. And to the extent they interpret it that way, that's what it is. Fuck your feelings. Fuck your intentions. It's this is how it is. Um, yeah, it has the beautiful circular logic of the of religion of the religious confessional. Yeah, where you know religion decrees that this is true, and if you deny that it's true, that's just more evidence that you've strayed too far from the flock, and yeah. you need to come and confess inside the context of the religion. How do you know the religion's true? Because it says it is. It's yeah, like it's, it's AA you, is the it's same a, way, right? And, if you and, deny that you're an alcoholic, yeah. you're an alcoholic. I think that dynamic is probably why I'm so know. uncomfortable with like denied. cancel culture as the as the as the war as the description of this thing. Because that right. it, it permits you to do the canceling, but it's the that's the totalitarian potential that we're talking about here. Like that's the thing that can be weaponized like in a way that is incredibly destructive, that creates a society that is simultaneously boring and awful because no one is taking risks and monstrous and dangerous because you can be destroyed for absolutely anything and you don't quite know what that thing is. You only know that the possibility (laughs) of your destruction, your imminent total destruction is right around the corner. So when someone whips out their camera, having cut you off in traffic and they start to scream at you, you called me a nigger. I, I, I didn't do anything 
why are you filming? Please stop filming. And you burst into tears. It's because you know that this could be it for you. Oh, that kid in Seattle. Yeah. Who started tell- selling t-shirts moments later. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was yeah. like, I was like, mom, that's pretty impressive that he had the t-shirt. Turn. He had like screen prints. Yeah. Like he was screen printing like, the, like within the, five The second hours. most popular podcast in America right now. Is that He's, true? No, I made that shit up. Oh, okay. Um, Josh, we've held you for a long time. Thank you, Josh. Um, God bless you, I can you, also Josh see Sapps. that Michael Moynihan has just grabbed another bottle of booze from yeah, his shelf a, and a, is, a, is planning uh, a big night. <laughs> this it's is a pretty of... late in, it's pretty late in New York. City, so no, I'm, I can't tell you how jealous do. I am. It's it's only just begun, Josh. <laughs> this is a uh, a bottle of uh, Palinka. Palinka, yeah, the, uh, Hungarian uh, national drink, and uh, I guess it's uh, in celebration of Viktor Orban. No, I'm joking. Yeah, <laughs> no, I'm kidding. <laughs> I know like it's the Polacks. The Polacks just uh, reelected that. Okay, assholes. well, when the uh, yeah. when the Australian borders finally open and America gets its shit together and has uh, a President Biden who brings in an era of milk and honey, lion oh, yeah. sleeping with lamb, Jeez. I will come back to Brooklyn and the four of us will drink heartily. <laughs> no, we're gonna go to Australia, baby. Fifth yeah. column tour. Can we yeah, do can a tour of Australia? Can you arrange both that? cities? We're yeah, can going. Can you arrange That's for a, a visa for us? It's... We'll be quarantined for fourteen days when we come to the country. But you know, no, no Australians are allowed in. Yeah, no. No, Australians allowed in. We're going to keep your ass out as long as if, we possibly can. If I'm not can. having sex with the security guards, this is not a hotel <laughs> I want to stay in. Damn it! That's what this. I got. I got to get a D at the yeah, quarantine no, hotel. No, this has been a rough quarantine. I got to be fucking some security That's guards. Right. <laughs> That's right. Oh. I'll get you some exemptions. I'll get you some exemptions so That's you can right. come in. We'll do a tour. That'd be great. I'll exemptions. even interview you on the That's public broadcaster. Yeah. yeah. I'll be. I'll be sitting there like a North Korean uh, spokesperson for the Australian <laughs> government, interviewing you guys. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> on the national state broadcaster. Oh, Our God. great leader, Skomo, Scotty from <laughs> Welcome to, to Australia. Oh, my God. That's what's going to get me canceled. We can cut that by What an amazing, podcast. amazing yes, podcast cool. this has been. COVID, Uncomfortable destruction with of the Josh. species with uh, an asteroid. And Thank also, you, Josh Zeps. Yeah, re- listen to Josh Zeps' Uncomfortable conversation. I listened to the first episode. It was great. Josh is an incredible interviewer. Canceled culture. And a great guy and a friend of the podcast. Yes, yes. I love you guys. Take podcast. care of yourselves. Take care of everybody. Listeners, love you all. Take care. All bye, right, bye. 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 <laughs> we know of new methods of attack. The Trojan Horse.